host is not yet in the meeting. Hi, Eva. Eva, look what I found today. You see what that is? A white hair. The echo is terrible. Wait, you have white hair, Jamie? We're right next to each other. Jamie, it's the beginning of the end. I know. It's only the beginning. Eva, you look so pretty. My white hair. Let it go. You see it? Jamie, it's like one of many to come, you know? Oh, I'm 22 years old. <laughs> Where's your white hair? Uh, I don't God know. Forbid. I think it's just genetic or something. God forbid. My mom said she didn't have white hair until her late 50s. Well, her, her early 50s. Stop stressing about Corona. Ever come back? Ever come back to me? There it is. Do you see that? <laughs> and it's it's not only is it white. The white thing I could deal with. It's thick. It's crunchy. Evan, your makeup looks so pretty. Who's teaching right now? I don't remember. Tahila. Ah, I think. Is it um, Shmuel or? Let me look. Per oh, okay. Anyways, girls, in case we're interested. <laughs> How's everyone doing? I'm good. How are you? Who's talking? Hannah? Yeah. Hannah? How are you? Oh, is that Tahila? Where are you all? Oh, we're in Jerusalem. Located. We're, we're at Mayano. We're in Jerusalem. You are. Lucky you. Yeah. Tahila. Tahila. Jamie. What? Who's that? Who's that? Hi. <laughs> Hello. This is Jamie. Oh, Eva, I oh. see you. Hi. Girls, it's almost my 23rd birthday, and for my 23rd birthday, I'm getting, I'm, I'm turning white-haired. <laughs> oh, Dee. And Hannah. Hi. 
the hell is that? Oh, she's trying to fix her sound. You might have done phone. You can use phone to use audio too, Tahila. Tahila, Tahila, my if, you're, if your uh, device audio doesn't work. Okay, now I know the gray hair is freaking you out. So <laughs> just know, just know, okay? Yeah. All right, I'm 60 and it is kind of freaky, all right? <laughs> but it gets better. Get to a point. No, and I'm flipping out now because I haven't dyed it because I dye it. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's so dry. It's so gray right now. I'm plotting. All right? I am really plotting. I don't see gray. Oh, it's gray. You're 60. You look so good. Look at you. Really? <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm jiving, honey. I'm jiving. <laughs> I am definitely jiving. I'm jiving because I'm talking to you guys. That's why. <laughs> You're giving me the energy to jive. It's Where are you located? I'm in Potomac, Maryland. Oh, my old roommate from college is from there. Who's that? Her name is Emily Levy. Yeah, it's a big place. <laughs> oh, she might be more Silver Springs, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I think she went to school in Potomac, something like that. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Coach or, coach or butcher and they're delivering. Hello? <laughs> hey. Um, you know what? I'm good. I'm good. We're good. It's fine. Thank you. See ya. You lost okay. to Bye bye. Oh no. I don't know where she went. How many of you all are in your racial I am? I'm not. <laughs> I wish. Uh, Where are you? I'm in Texas. Four of us. Where in Texas? El Paso. My daughter is the shlucha at the University of Texas. Really? Wow. Yeah. The Johnson. Uh, uh, what? Johnson. John Ariella. Oh. Do you know Ariella? Yeah. yeah. I've, I, I've never been to UT. Yeah. Yeah, UT Austin. Yeah, that's my my daughter and her and her husband and their family are the shluchim there. That's awesome. I had a friend who went there. I'm sure they know her then. Oh. That's so cool. Who's, Only good things I've heard. <laughs> who's that? Who's your who's your friend? My friend. Her name is Sydney. She graduated though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I know the name. I know the yeah? name. Yeah. Yep. That's yep. awesome. She was like super involved. Yep. Yep, that's cool. Hey, is your sound working? Well, I wish I was in here. I am. It's really nice. It today was not not to brag. <laughs> hey, go for it. Cause it's pouring. The weather head. today was beautiful, and yeah, Corona has been not. I don't want to say good. But it's been a lot better here. The officially, as of yesterday, the number of people recovered is more than the number of people um, diagnosed. Diagnosed, like affected. Yeah. So it's like the curve is starting to turn. That's good. Yeah. But yeah, it's just really crazy. Well, I'm going to tell yeah. you this. This is kind of crazy. So in our backyard, we in our neighbor's backyard actually, there is a yeah. breeding family of foxes, and she just had. Oh, yeah. It's crazy. 
It's so fun. It's scary. So in the morning, I wake up, I pull my blinds, and I look outside, and they are like playing out there like pups. And I'm like, is this really happening? I'm watching like the foxes. This isn't like, they're not squirrels, they're foxes. It's Yeah. Yeah. Do they look like dogs or like cats? Yes. Yes, like a kind of a cross. That's so cute. Yeah, it's probably cu- it's cute that it's in someone else's yard. <laughs> yeah. it's in my yard. It's For now, not going to be cute anymore. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah, the wildlife is going wild because it's so yeah. Wild. So they're really um, everything's very active. So yep. Pretty, uh, pretty interesting. I, I think I remember hearing something once about foxes and like Mashiach coming and, well, but I think that might be Jerusalem. I'm not sure. I don't know if anyone else has heard that. Well, does it count? If we have an apartment there, so maybe it counts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe it would, it might have been like foxes by the hotel is like a sign. I don't remember. Oh, that's Something funny. like that. That is very interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna look it up. Look it up. Please look it yeah. up. Because that's really interesting. Matt, do you do Jamie, I totally stuff? remember the story you're talking about where yeah, it was like Rabbi Akiva or somebody saw the Foxes. fox walking. Yeah, yeah. Oh by, the, by the temple. And he said like a sign of Mashiach coming would be having like orangey reddish foxes and like other wild animals, right? I'm gonna look at Oh my gosh. Is she, I think she's here. I think she's frozen. Oh. So I was like, yeah, it's a, I was like, where's the, she maybe she wants to start the class. Yeah, no, she's been frozen and her, her who, sound wasn't working. Who's giving, who's giving this one? Uh, Tehilla, Mark, Markowitz, oh, Markovitz. Okay. okay. All right. Oh yeah, it says it. Okay, I looked it up. On, <laughs> I looked it up on my iPad. You can't really Give it see. Up, Give it up. But it's uh, it's a article from COL, and uh-huh. it says about online, and it says fulfillment of prophecy. Foxes seen at Kotel. Huh. Let's well, see. I'm gonna read. Yeah, there was a um, this Rabbi Shmuel uh, Rabinowitz. I think it's uh-huh. Rabinowitz. Rabinovitz, um, said, one cannot refrain from crying at the sight of the fulfillment of the prophecy of foxes will walk on it as Tisha B'Av is approaching. That's what he said. Students of Rabbi Yakiva remember how he consoled his friends, something blah, 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 until the prophecy of Uriah with regard to the destruction of the city was fulfilled. I was afraid. Basically, he just, wow. Okay, wait. Wow. I'll try to summarize. That's fine. That's fine. Went to the office. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Want I think that Rabbi Akiva just said that. Um, that is so crazy. I don't even know why I even shared that with you guys. I was like. <laughs> That is really crazy. Funny. Really crazy. Wow. Yeah. There's about eight of them in the backyard. Yeah. It's really weird. <clears throat> okay. After, I think it was that after 
the second temple was destroyed, foxes like walked on the ground and they said that was like a, Rabbi Akiva was like, the next time we see that again, it's a sign that the third temple will be built. Well guys, the best I can say is that they're here in Potomac, cool. the best I can say is they're here in Potomac, Maryland and they are, uh, <laughs> they're cruising. They'll make their way here soon. <laughs> there you go. Oh. Are you are you are you going crazy? Or are you like hanging? You're you're doing good. I think in Jerusalem here, we're at least we're doing good. We have like a, a little backyard slash front yard, kind of on the side. So I don't know whatever you want to call it. So the weather's been nice, so we can lay outside. We can like walk around that little area. Nice. Yeah, we were just on lockdown for both Yom Hazikaron and Hazmaut, and yeah. Hi. Now hello. Now we hear you, Tehila. Hello. Shamim otanu? Shamim otanu? Shamim otanu? Ken, Ken, Ken. Oh, Shamim, שלום, 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 שלום. שלום. אה, טוב, welcome everybody, שלום, שלום. איזה יופי, תסייע לפי... So not, not much time to recap what we did last time, but just, uh, just, just one sentence, just to, to remind you that we said, we started with the introduction to Mperkei Avot, which was, everybody has, everybody from Bnei Israel has a share in the world to come. So unless you screw up, you have a place in Gan Eden. Remember, we said this is in a contradiction to what uh, the other West, like to what Christianity says, that you're in sin and everything is bad and you have to really work hard to actually achieve something. It's the opposite in Judaism, which says, if you don't screw up, you're good. Sedem? <laughs> okay. Sarah, are you okay? You're not distressed. No, okay. Fine. So today we'll delve into the Mishnah itself. Ready? Okay, do you want to read with me or should we skip that because you're mute and because what do you say? Should we, you, should we read together or should we skip it? Let's skip, no time. You have a class after me? Okay, we'll skip. <laughs> Fine, so you have your Mishnah? Masechet Avot? Okay. Whenever you want to say something, since you're mute, so if it's yes, go like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Good, good. I see all your Chabad Mishnayot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you all have the same. You know how many types of publications of Masechet of what there are? And you all have the same one. <laughs> this one Nora, I put this one up and Nora also had it. Okay, so we're going, we're continuing with the Ben Ishchai. Because that is something you don't usually get. So I'm putting in my Sephardi touch in here. And 
Roll with me. So, Mishnah Aleph, Moshe, you have it open? Moshe kibbel Torah misinai. So Moshe got received Torah from Sinai, passed it on to Yehoshua. Yehoshua lizkinim. Yehoshua passed it on to the zkinim, to the elders. Uzkinim leneviim, and the elders passed it on to the neviim. Nevi is prophet, so the elders passed it on to the prophets. Uneviim mesaruha leanshech neset agedola, and the prophets passed it on to anshech neset agedola, which is like the what was before the Sanhedrin. It was 120 uh, elders. That some of them were prophets. Some of them achieved prophecy. Even it's not that there's a status of a Kohen, let's say, and a status of a Navi. Anybody could be a Navi. You can be a Kohen Navi, you can be an Israel Navi. Anybody can be a Navi. It's easier if you're in Israel because then you can reach that high level, spiritual level. Uh, <laughs> yes. But, um, but you can, but <laughs> I see you're nodding. Ken, Ken, I see you. But again, uh, if, you, if you cleanse yourself and you reach that and you perfect yourself and you shine your neshama and you do things right, you can reach prophecy. So some of these Anshaykh Nesakdala were actually prophets. And Nevi'im Mesawajah, so they, so right, who is Anshaykh Nesakdala? Akshaykh they were about from, ah, I tell you English dates, uh, 480 BC before Common Era till. 333 BC, there's a machloket, but pro approximately those 150 years from 480 till 330 BC. Shalom, All of those are, that's the time Hi. of, <laughs> that's the time of an Sheikh Neset which means it was kind of, they really, what happened was usually, usually there were 70 elders and they were like, they're like the top 70 elders who, who give us all the Torah and who can tell us what to do and all the, and like the judge and everything. So how come now there's 120? Because what happened, this is just a, probably it's just a technical thing. What happened was, Ezra Safel, there was the Bet HaMikdash, the temple was destroyed. First temple was destroyed. Everybody went to diaspora, to Galut, okay? And then when they came back, they didn't come back all at once. It wasn't like, Mashiach and everybody came. No, it was, it happened very gradually. First, the king Koresh or Cyrus, I think it's called in English, Koresh said, uh, I got a vision from the, from the God of the, of the Israelis, of the, the Israeli God, and he said, I should let you go to Yerushalayim, and then he let them go to Yerushalayim, and then they didn't all come. They just like trickled because, because they, had it, they were already comfor comfortable in Galut. Does that sound familiar? Yes, yes. Which is why, which is why, which is why, again, again, that's the heart, the strongest case, the strongest argument against those ultra Haredim that say we have to wait for Mashiach and then we'll just, you know, the second temple, third temple. Hopefully I wish, amen, why not? But 
if we see how it was in history, we already had, we've been there, done that. And when we came back and built the second temple, it wasn't like that. The second temple did not drop from Shemaine. It was gradually, they built it, and there were all these people in the area that, that interrupted the building, and they were against it, and it was a whole process. It took a while. It was very, it was like very natural. It was very, there were a lot of politics and things like that. So if that's what happened with the second temple, why it's not improbable that that's what's going to happen with the third temple. Okay? That's uh, like current events a little bit. Questions still here? Wait, no. so how, okay. how did this make it go from 70 to 120? Oh, yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Nora. <laughs> Nora is like the... It's like the watch guard. She watches everything is going to be. <laughs> okay, no, it's good. It's good. I need it. Okay, fine. So we were supposed to be 70, but as I was saying, so Ezra Sofer, Ezra, the, the, he was like the head of the Gola that came into Israel and he was a leader. And he was in charge and he had the okay from the king to build the second temple and everything. And he was afraid that not everybody's going to follow if they're now going to make a new system and like have a new uh, like uh, operation of like, like, like build from scratch again, um, a system of a Sanhedrin of 70 elders. A lot of people aren't going to accept those 70 elders because, uh, because most of the Jews stayed in wherever they were in Persia or wherever they were. They would say, oh, but we don't go by him. We have our own rabbis. And who are you to say, why should we follow it? It's going to disconnect. Right. Why should we follow those 70 elders when we have like, uh, our Gdolador is actually with us, you know? So he had to make it, he, like for political reasons, he made it bigger. He said that this institution, the new institution of the chief rabbinate of Israel, now, um, then when he said it, it's not going to be of 70, it's going to be 120 because he took, like, you, you can also join, he said, you can also join, you can also join and also take that rabbi from that country and from that country. And then he had everybody, all the gedoyling were there, all the big rabbis were there, so nobody could say, well, this doesn't, he doesn't represent me, he doesn't represent me. Kapish? Okay, good. Like, uh, I can't resist, I must put here another word. Yesterday was Yom Ha'atzmaut, <laughs> and one of the biggest highlights in Yom Ha'atzmaut is that you, you light torches, like you have 12 torches that you light from people who have done very important things for the nation, etc. And one of the, the, one of the torches was supposed to be lit by someone called Chani Lifshitz. She's a Chabad, Shlucha. Okay, see some of you know what I'm talking about. And so it's a huge honor, it's a huge honor. And she was supposed to light it. It was nice. She's also a woman. She's also Chabad. And it's nice to, that she's, you know, part of Israel. And even though it's not a, it's a secular state, but it's very, you know, connected. And she's in Kathmandu. And then, she's not even in Israel. What? She's, what? The she's the Shlucha in Kathmandu. They wanted to honor yeah. her because of the Israeli backpackers. Right. She's right. So you're supposed to pre represent, I think, the, the Jews in diaspora. Or like helping the Jews in diaspora, whatever. But then Chabad, like some big rabbis in Chabad, um, told her not to light it. Ouch, 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 ouch. So she didn't, yes, right. 
So what, why, when I, I don't want to like say anything bad against anybody, and especially not nowadays, but I'm just saying that this shows that whatever goes on in Israel is not accepted by all Jews. Like some say, well, we have our own, you know, rabbi to tell us this, and even if you're, it's not, it's not accepted. And this is today. So we can see how it was then that if he wanted, he was smart and he wanted to avoid such a situation. So he said, you know what, you be part of this uh, chief rabbinate in Israel. I'll take also Chabad, I'll take also Litvak, I'll take this and that and the Tilumi and all the spectrum. And we'll have 120 and no one can afterwards say, well, it doesn't represent me. So it was 120, it was for about 150 years and then and then, but then slowly, like somebody died, they didn't replace him till it got to 70 and they said 70 is like the minimum, we're staying with 70. More or less, that's what happened. Okay? So that's about Knesset Agdola. Good. Thank you, Brenda. Fine. So, um, this Mishnah has a Reisha and a Seifa. I don't know if you know those terms because I don't know what you learned already in Mayanot. Reisha from the word Rosh, Seifa from the word Sof. So, Rosh is beginning, like head, beginning. The start like Rosh Hashanah is the beginning of the year. Seifa, Sof, end. You can see easily that this Mishnah is divided into two parts, a Reisha and a Seifa. Till now we talked about the Reisha. So Moshe got the Torah from, received Torah from Sinai, passed it on to this, who passed it on to this, da, 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 da. And now the second part is, Hem Amru Shloshadvarim. They said three things. Who is they? They refers to Anshei Knesset Agdola. So Anshei Knesset Agdola said three things. Hem Amru Shloshadvarim. Hevu metunim badin. Metunim is from the word um, lehamtin. Lehamtin is like, like lehamtin. Rega, rega, lehamtin. Like this. Oh, yeah, I forgot. In America, it's rude to do like this, right? But in Israel, it's just common. So lehamtin is just wait. So like uh, if you have, if you call somebody and it goes, and then it says, Sicha Mamtina, which is the same Shoresh, which means call waiting. So Lehamtin is to wait. So they said, badin. Be like, don't rush when you do a din, when you judge, don't rush, but be like patient. Even though this is, it sounds, it sounds Pashut, but if you're a judge and you have like till noon, you have till your first break, you have to do like 20 cases and you want to finish the line, it's so, so, it's so easy to just like try to like rush it all. This sounds familiar. You said something like, so you like just put things into patterns and then you try to like solve issues and different uh, judicial system like very fast without really listening and getting into each and every case. It's a, it's such a common problem. So, be like patience, but don't like rush and just try to cut fast. That means like make have a lot of talmidim. Don't like uh, say okay, I'll only I'll only teach three of you, and that like, take the three most brilliant people or whatever, and say I'll teach the three brilliant ones and forget the rest. No, it's more. It's interesting actually. There used to be a machloket between two big rabbis if quantity versus quality. Should you go by quality and just um, put all your efforts in like the the top students or quantity? Like to have the more, more is better, you know? And then some of them, even though you don't give the most attention to the top ones, but you have more people. So it's, it's a machloket. So here it rules, the ruling over here, as you can see, is the focus is on having many quantity over quality. 
So the, you should have many Talmudim, many like pass the Torah to many people and not just have it like, um, like just a, like a club of the most brilliant of the secluded club of, you know, like only Einstein's in here. No, that's not the point. And make, okay, that's hard to explain, but uh, you probably learned it in Hilchot Shabbat, make like a, like a fence around the Torah. That's Pshat. There's different ways of seeing what does it mean to make a fence around the Torah. There's different Pshat. There's different ways of seeing it. We're going by Ben Ish Chai. Remember? Yes. So, well, I'm, I'm really talking fast, first of all, because you're not saying anything, you're all mute. But second of all, because we don't have time. Okay. <laughs> I wonder if the Kotel feels like that. You know, it's just like, <laughs> I feel like I'm talking to the Kotel and not talking back. No, 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 it's okay. That's okay. Sorry. No, okay. okay. So if you look at the... Actually, Tehila, I have a question. So wait, you said the sentence, the phrase of like, put a fence around the Torah. So like, is that where like, it comes when people like, I guess like- I can't hear you. I can't hear you, Brenda. I can't hear you. You can't hear me? I just can hear you faintly, very faintly. No. Uh, I don't know. I'm like screaming. Now I heard you better. Can you scream? (laughs) No, because my my sister's in school, so I can't scream. She's in the other room in class. It's okay. This is more important. I'll message you the question later. I have your number. <laughs> oh, but they, okay, fine. Fine, questions later. Or, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. Or shout. Where can I shout? <laughs> so, so you like, if you look at the first part, he says there's like, it's like a formula, but there's something that breaks the formula. Because if we go from the end to the, if you look at the first part, and Sheikh Knesset Abdullah got it from the Nevi'im, who got it from Skinim, who got it from Yeshua, who got it from Moshe Rabbeinu, right? And who did Moshe Rabbeinu get the Torah? He was the first one to receive the Torah. Who did Moshe Rabbeinu get it from? Now, if we were to follow the pattern, like if you, this got it from this, got it from this, got it from this, it should have been Moshe Kibel Torah Kadosh Baruch Hu. He didn't get Torah from Sinai. Sinai is a place. All the rest got it from a person, and it's the oral Torah. So you have to get it from somebody who can explain it. It should have been Moshe Kibel Torah from Kadosh Baruch Hu. But it says Moshe Kibel Torah Sinai. That's question number one. Also, question number two. All the rest it says that he passed it on to this, he passed it on to this, and passed it on to this. But it doesn't say that the Kadosh Baruch Hu passed it on to Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu, it says Moshe received it, and then he passed it on. Why does it not say that the Kadosh Baruch Hu passed it on to Moshe Rabbeinu, who passed it on to this, who passed it on to that, who passed it on to this, da 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 Right? So those are the two questions about Moshe Rabbeinu. A, why did it say that he received and it doesn't say that it was passed on to him by? B, um, Sinai. Why did it say God from Sinai, which is a place? He didn't, he didn't zoom with the, with the mountain and then just get revelation, you know? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So says the Ben Ishrei as follows. Okay. Well, this is a little bit hard to explain, but I'll try Moshe Rabbeinu is called Ish HaElokim. Ish, man, Elokim, Elokim, like a man of God. But he says, and everything he says, he quotes and brings, uh, you know, brings, um, he brings sources, but we're not going to go into that now. But he says, Moshe Rabbeinu was like half 
an angel and half a person. He reached such a level that he was like almost a complete angel. Okay? Now, if he would have gone all the way up and continued to ascend, he could have... He could have just become a, he could have reached the level of just his body, like, um, I don't know how to say the word, but becoming an angel. Like he would have kind of died because his body would have been here and like turned kind of into like just whatever body is made of. And, his, and he would just have become like more of a, of a spiritual kind of entity, which is an angel, which is still something living in this world, but in a totally different dimension. This is this is hard. This is hard to explain. I, I'm just explaining as much as I understand, which isn't, I, probably a fraction of what really is happening. But there's different. Just like you know that there's a, just like there's plants and and I mean vegetables and then animals and there's different levels of that. So then after people, there's also a level of angels, which is something we can't really, I, we can't really understand. Just like. Just like a fish can't really understand what a person is, just knows that he can get caught by a net, but he doesn't really understand what a person is. His free choice is uh, his, uh, his taste is whatever. He doesn't, he can't because he's limited. So Moshe Rabbeinu could have, if he would have continued to, if he would have stayed there, like in that level, he would have become an angel. But he had to stay in order for something as kadosh and spiritual as a Torah to get to us, to human beings, it's such, it's two extremes. It has to be something to mediate between those two extremes. And Moshe Rabbeinu could have mediated it, but only if he would have stayed on a mountain. He couldn't have, he could have gone up the mountain and then Kadosh would have like taken him and he would have been an angel and that's it. He would have been so up there, we couldn't have received the Torah. But he had to stay on the mountain. Part of his being able to pass it on was because he stayed on something physical, which was a mountain, which was Sinai. Because he was here in the Sinai and he wasn't, he didn't continue over there. That he like he's half person, half angel kind of. So he, I mean, he's a person. He's a hundred percent a person, but he reached that level of, of being, so close to being an angel without separating from humanity and becoming an angel. So that's why it says Misinai because it was due to the fact that he got it from a mountain from Sinai that he was able to receive it and pass it on. Point understood? Okay. <laughs> now, to receive is much more is, is passive. To pass on is dynamic. And another thing is also when you pass something on, then like if I have, if I have something and I pass it on, then I don't have it anymore, right? I pass it on, that's it. But for him to receive something, to get it, it, like, if I, if I explain something and then I ask you, did you get it? And you say, got it. If you got it, it doesn't mean that now everything I passed on to you, I don't have. I still, I still have that, I still have that, I still have the information. I passed it on. I pass it as it is. I pass it on. I didn't keep it with me. I passed everything on to you, but it didn't disappear from my mind. I have it and you got it. Get it? <laughs> okay, so so when he passed it on, he could pass the he passed on the whole thing. He didn't he didn't leave anything with him. He passed the whole thing on, but he couldn't. He can't. Hashem does not pass anything on because it's there. 
the Torah or whatever the Torah represents, the ethics, the behaviors, the, the ideals, the values, whatever, whatever the Torah is, the manuscript of this world, like the inner, inner system of, of the world we see today, that is the Torah. The Torah or anything, everything the Torah represents, those, those principles are all the time up there. They're, they're some, in some kind of dimension around, around us. It can be passed on. He can receive it, but it's still, it's, he, it's still there, and yet he got it. But he passed it on to Yoshua, passed it on to this kingdom, and then he died, and then it, it passed on. So that's the difference between to receive something and to pass on. When you receive it, it he got it. If he got it, then it's still there. It still works. But to pass on, that means he passed it on so that also when he dies, it's still passed on. Th these are deep things. The Ben Ishchai is not... He's like a serious guy. He's not, it's like, <laughs> so I know it's like giving you all these big terms and big things and like so fast, but, but it's good. It's deep. You're, you're like, you have to feel like you're swimming in a different dimension, a dimension of Torah. If you do, it's good. Very cool. Huh? Very cool. Okay. Okay. Whew. Another thing is actually when you pass on the word soul to pass on also has like the kind of the association of Mesirut Nefesh. You soul something, Mesirut Nefesh, you really pass it on. He didn't leave it by him, he passed it on. He's like, with Mesirut Nefesh. And here he also says another point of Ben Ishchai. And he says, he says, from here we learn how important it is to pass things on. Like how you have to really be Mesirut Nefesh to pass. He says like, whoa, I wish we had more time. Okay, he says like uh, in, other, in, other, in other realms of, of, um, of wisdom. Let's, let's take a professor of, I don't know, of physics, okay? There's this professor of physics. This is, this is true. Let's, I'm telling you a true story of Corona, what's happening now. All these professors, everybody, there's a race around the world to find a real cure and a real, um, what's it called? Chisun, uh, immunation, immune, immunan, whatever. A vaccine. Vaccine, thank you. A real vaccine, um, a, a, a cure and a vaccine to this corona thing. And there's a, it's like a race. Everybody is like, uh, all, every country, every professor would be, of course, would be his claim to fame if he finds it. So it's a huge race. Now, really what happens is, most professors in physics or in biology or they're in medicine, they're already old. Like a lot of them are old. Or they're already, they're busy. They have their own thing. And they, they can't really put everything aside and work only on that. They have, they have students. At the end of the day, the ones who probably are going to find the, the cure or the vaccine are the students. Because they're there in the lab and they're going to work on it. And, but the professor is going to get all the fame. So that's what happens. At the end of the day, that's what happens. Because all these, and I've, I know that from all the progresses that I've done so far, that all these professors have gotten so far, they say, oh yeah, this one got, the, got this, you know, whatever, I don't even know all the termination, but it's really, they, they take all the fame, but it's their students that do it. There's, it's their, I, I know from uh, the Technion in Israel, because I know somebody who learns there, and they, they had some kind of a breakthrough, and their professor is like, oh, everybody's talking about this professor that got this breakthrough. Right, it's so annoying. It's kishkush. It's not him. It's his students. I mean, all these students stayed overnight, and he was like, 
Okay, they'll come back with me to this answer and then and they do all the work and then he gets on the thing. Why am I bringing this? Because in contradiction, like what happens with Moshe Rabbeinu or with the Torah is that you're not supposed to leave every, like, don't leave it with you. You can't say, I want to be called the Gadol Ador and therefore I will only give a little part of my Torah to my students. So because I, I want to be the one, the address for everybody to ask me. So I'm just going to give you a little bit of Torah, but everybody come to me because only I know the answers or whatever, you know, it's me, it's me, it's me. It's, that's not real Torah. And here, even from the very first Mishnah, it says how the whole focus is on Masal, Moshe Masal Yoshua, Masal is Kenny, Masal. Even, and the point is also, quality over quantity. Don't take like three, four brilliant ones. And that's it, quality, it belongs to everybody. Every Jew should have a part in Torah. So, and learn how to learn halachot and all that. Don't keep it by you and don't think this is like, don't have this like kind of a snobbish kind of club of gdolei ador. That is contradictory to the spirit of Torah. Zedel? So, well, there's so much more to say, but I'm trying to think what should I skip and what not. Okay. Says the Ben Ishchai, what is the connection though between those three things that they say and the fact, what we said of the Risha, that he receded from him, what is the connection? Why these three things? They said many things. Why these three things? One answer is that these are the main things. And this is really, they didn't think that every, every person would have like a Mishnah and everybody would learn. So this was really written for, for actually the, the, the leaders of the next generation. This is like a manuscript or like a book of advice for the next generation, for the next leaders of the generation, because I didn't think that every woodcutter and every woman, woman bichlal, would be able to learn. But yeah, so this advice is like for the leaders. But we are now on a level that everybody can read and write and have, uh, we have time to learn ourselves, and so it's a different kind of generation, but we can read it. But so their advice was for the leaders, those three things. When they say be patience with, with um, ruling a verdict, with the din, with having judgment, they're saying to the leaders, when you have a case in front of you, don't rush into a, into a judgment. Don't say, oh, okay, stop, you understand your point. You're wrong, you're right. No. Every case is like a case, is a world in its own. The person who came to, before you in this case, for him, he doesn't, it's not fair. You have 20 cases before and 20 cases after. For you, it's nothing. You forget that you go afterwards, have coffee and forget about it. That person, the whole, his whole world. I mean, he came in front of you till, till he got to you. It was probably such, you know, such a stretch and so much time. He had to take time from his work. And it's like, it's a big deal. For him, it's the whole thing. You have to be patient with judgment. Which is beautiful because, it, again, you know what? Even uh, I happened to see, before I knew I was going to become, I didn't know I was going to, I, I didn't, I didn't know I was going to be a teacher. And then during high school, special program, and then I actually started learning uh, law in Barilan, in Israel. Yes. And I, was, I think I was still in 10th grade. It was a special program. And then I was there one semester, and I quit. Why? Because it was terrible. It was a disaster. It, was, it scarred me to life to such an extent. Not only did I, did I know for sure that I did not want to be a lawyer, I even knew that I don't even want to date a lawyer. It was that bad. 
Why? Why? Why is it that bad? Why? I also want to start. I want to start. Yeah, as I was saying, saying Baghdad, Baghdad is like a, is like a religious, the religious university in Israel, right? Like that's the flag. That is like religious. And then the prof, the professor stands there in huge hall, like because it was um whatever called like it was like a prodigy, whatever uh, um uh, kind of uh, program for like all all different high schools. So whatever, and he stands there and he says the first thing that he said, like he taught us was there is really no thing as justice. There's only, well, he said in Hebrew, and din or something like that. Something that was so, ah, oh, what am I doing here? Like, it's not about being fair. It's about like going through, uh, going like with the rules of justice. Like you have to, you have to have, you have to have a certain amount of cases and you have to be fast. So you have to learn principles, how to cut them down, how to do fast and how to reach conclusions and, and that kind of thing. And there was no focus at all reaching justice, no focus about that. And this is again, Bar-Ilan, it's supposed to be like, you know, like Torah, spirit and everything. So I don't know, I was scarred for life anyways. I did not marry a lawyer. I did not date a lawyer. I stick to my uh, stuck to my principles. <laughs> I don't know if anybody here is actually learning that, so don't I mean whatever. But I whatever. I was yeah, fifteen, and this was like terrible. Why did I bring that? This because this is the opposite of So in every country in Israel, and I know that also in America. I don't know other countries, but I know for a fact that also in America, when you learn uh, law, you have you learn about again about reaching conclusions fast and how to what do you have to say why do you say that if you get a better lawyer you 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 for sure will win it's all about the lawyers because they know how to present the case it's all about presenting the case and not about really finding what the true emit is okay but that is not even to anybody that's only the first one and it's i but we have two minutes so i'll just tell you one more thing also for um, like on, on a personal level not uh, not just for the leaders of the next generation but also for every person every individual he also brings that in he says something that could also relate to them also when there is midat hadin like when you know what din is right din is like justice like that no chesed opposite of chesed so when you're in times of ches of din as opposed to chesed times of din like let's say like it's a wild example if there's like a, some kind of a corona, let's say, in the world, which is definitely Dean, let's say, yeah? No, no. So, like, be patient. He says, don't like, uh, don't like try to find why, why does this mean Hashem doesn't love us? Does this mean like, don't go crazy? Like, be patient. Hashem has his um, plan. Like, just patient, patient, go past, be the best person you can under these circumstances, and Be'ezrat Hashem, akol yele tova. Tov. We have one more minute. Any questions before I sign off? Tov, sorry, sorry, sorry for being late, with, and we'll have to continue next time. Be'ezrat Hashem. Okay. Love you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you. Thank you. Love you. Is there another class?
Okay, uh, hello, uh, can everyone hear me? Okay, good. Anyway, welcome, it's good, uh, good to see you and uh, it's nice to see all the different environments that uh, uh, you're, uh, you're, you're in and uh, I know that uh, this is a, uh, a challenging time, but Be'ezrat Hashem, uh, Hashem will carry us through it and hopefully we will grow from the challenge, we will become greater, we will discover strengths and resilience that that we didn't know that we had uh if anyone uh in your family or that anyone that you know is unfortunately sick uh, we pray that they should have a refua shlema amina shamayim the soch shar kolchole israel and uh i think all of us pray that hashem should give us a yeshua very very soon and uh, yeshua from this magefa should be a precursor to the uh uh, that all of us are praying for. And uh, all of your learning during this time uh, counts extra special, precisely because it is through difficulty and through efforts. And Perkyavos tells us, Lefum Tsara Agra, according to the suffering, is the ultimate, is the ultimate reward. Um, I know that Pesach was probably a little more lonely than, than usual, but uh, the one thing to remember is HaKadosh Baruch was always with us, just as he was with us when we left Mitzrayim. So in many, many ways, a Jew is never alone. A Jew is never lonely, because ultimately uh, they, you have your Kesher, we have our Kesher with HaKadosh Baruch at at all times. Uh, it's been a long time uh, since we uh, spoke. I, I, I believe the last thing we talked about was uh, stem cell research. I thought tonight, and maybe for the next few weeks even, I would talk about some halachic aspects of the coronavirus itself, different halachic questions that one has to deal with. Uh, and tonight, I want to talk briefly about two questions. One is a monetary issue, and one is a question of life and death, quite literally. The monetary issue, which is actually quite a big issue, is... What effect does corona have on monetary obligations? For example, uh, people put down money for Pesach programs, right? A lot of people go to hotels for Pesach. That's a whole debate. Is it good to go to a hotel? Is it not good to go to a hotel? But whatever it is, for various reasons, people go to the hotel either for convenience or because uh, they're physically uh, frail and it's hard for them to make a Pesach or Kainahara, the family is very, very big and they can't uh, assemble in any individual home. So hotel Pesach programs are quite important. In fact, I myself have been a scholar in residence at hotel Pesach programs, both in Chutzlars and in Eretz Israel, for around 25 years. This was the first year in uh, almost a quarter century that my wife and I uh, made uh, Pesach. Although I'll tell you a little secret. Uh, we thought it would be impossible. The truth is we liked it much more than the hotel. I, I may not go back to a hotel in the future, 
uh, because of this. But be it as it may, the issue is this. People put down deposits ahead of time. And then the Pesach program gets canceled. Do they get their money back? Uh, do they have to pay? Uh, do they get their money back? After all, they put the money down for a service. They're not getting the service. Or you have a lot of businesses that have commercial leases. They pay rents. But under a government shutdown, they're not allowed to conduct their business. They're not allowed to go to their office. If that's the case, do they have to pay rent? Or can they basically say, I haven't gotten what I'm bargaining for? Uh, I'm paying rent in order to be able to occupy my office or my business. And if I cannot occupy my office or my business, then I'm not getting anything. Why do I have to pay rent? Or and a third common shila that you'll have, this can come up in a million contexts, is you have a gun, right? A lot of mothers uh, get, put their children in a kind of nursery or a kindergarten, right? In Eric Israel, it's called a gun. And uh, the gun requires that there be a monthly payment or a weekly payment. But then we have all of these weeks where uh, the kids cannot be dropped off and the gun has to close. So the question becomes, the Ganenet says, you still owe me the money just because you cannot bring your child. You have to pay me because after all, let's say there would be a sick day, generally speaking, and the way Gans work is you have to pay if there's a sick day. So Corona is just a long sick day and you still have to pay. Uh, but the parents claim, if we're not allowed to bring our child over, then we're not getting anything for our money. Why do we have to pay? Uh, the Ganenet can then respond, well, if you don't pay me, then I'm going to drop the child from registration later, right? So these are uh, what are called dine mamanos. These are monetary questions, meaning what is the effect of a cataclysmic event on the halachic obligation? In fact, it's a legal question as well. There's a whole secular law on it as well. Uh, that's called force majeure, which is really French for uh, act of God, uh, so to speak. But our primary concern would be, what are the halakhic obligations in terms of contracts, whether it's a hotel, uh, whether it's the gun, uh, whether it's paying rent when you're not allowed to occupy your premises, if it's an office or the like. So uh, this is actually a quite complicated area of halakha, meaning to say uh, the answer is not as simple as you might assume. We don't really have a single answer. I just want to explain a little bit what the halachic uh, issues are. Uh, first, let me give you a question that I received by email in which the halachic answer actually is fairly simple. Uh, a person uh, has a lease in his apartment here in Israel, and uh, he had gone to Switzerland either for vacation or to visit his parents. I don't remember the details. And because of the quarantine, he was not able to fly back and he was therefore deprived of the use of his apartment for two months, uh, does he have to pay rent for those two months? Now there, the answer actually is fairly simple. Hey, uh, just because something happened to you that you're not living in your apartment, I mean, let's say, let's assume, God forbid, somebody went to the hospital, you still have to pay rent because something that happens to you as a private personal matter does not affect your obligations to your landlord, right? You can't get out of paying rent because you're sick in the hospital. You can't get out of paying rent because you're visiting your parents in the US. You can't get out of paying rent even if you're stranded in the US or in this case, Switzerland. So we'll call that 
a private calamity. That's something that happened to you, and what happened to you does not affect your obligation uh, towards the other person. In fact, in the language of the Gemara, the Gemara calls that mazalcha goram. Your bad mazal, whatever that means, that mazal itself is a deep idea, your bad mazal caused the problem, you don't have the right to pass it on to your landlord. Ah, but that refers to something that happens to you as an individual. But what if there is a phenomenon that is widespread and affects everybody? That is called, Chazal have a term for that. That is called makas or makat medina. That means some type of plague that is affecting a whole country or a whole locality, or in this case, the whole world internationally. A makat medina is very, very different than a private calamity. A private calamity, we can basically say, is Hashem's gezeira on you. So Hashem's gezeira on you does not affect your obligation towards another person. But when it's a makat medina, it's not a gezeira on a particular person. It's a decree on everybody. So by makat medina, the halacha actually does say that you are exempt from paying uh, your rental obligations simply because uh, you, uh, uh, you have been deprived of the use of the premises and it has not been something that's miyuchet for you. So uh, one way of analyzing it is this. If we could plug corona into the halachic category of makat medina, that would actually exempt people uh, from a lot of obligations, and that would actually mean they would get their money back, etc. cetera. Uh, the only thing is I would make a difference. I think you have to make a difference. You have to make a difference between a closure that is legally required versus a simple fear, meaning like this. If I stopped sending my kid to the gun, even though it's legal to have the gun, but I don't want my child to be put in that matzah, that becomes my decision. So it seems to me it's a double pushet that if I simply decide as a parent, I don't want my kid to go to the gun, but the government allows the gun to be open, I do have to pay for the time that I've taken my parents out. Same thing with the commercial lease. Uh, if I've decided not to go into my office because I'm concerned about my health, even if I fall in a high-risk category, let's say over 60, diabetes, whatever, whatever, whatever the high-risk category is, that becomes my private decision. My private decision, even if a Rav told me to do that, cannot impact on my rental obligations. By contrast, it would appear at the point at which the government requires a shutdown, then in effect, that's the same as the building getting destroyed. If a building gets destroyed, I don't have to pay uh, rental because I don't have a building anymore uh, that I can go to. So what's the difference if it's destroyed because it's physically destroyed? Or what's the difference if it's destroyed because there's a government rule that I'm not allowed to go there? So what I often told people, people that have been asking me these, these questions over the past few months, uh, is in terms of the gun and in terms of the commercial rental obligation, uh, or in terms of a Pesach program, if it is simply your personal decision 
out of even legitimate concern for your health that uh, you don't want to go to the Gan, you don't want to send your kids to the Gan, you don't want to go to the Pesach program, or you don't want to go to the office or to your store, your personal decision cannot affect your obligation towards another person. In fact, this is actually very reminiscent of a famous remark that is attributed to Rav Yisrael Salanter, the great uh, Musser uh, Gadol of the 19th century. He said, it's very important that you not be a tzaddik on somebody else's cheshvan. You want to be righteous. You want to be extra strict in protecting your health. That's a good thing. Of course, you should be extra strict. But when you're extra strict, you can't do it uh, to the detriment of somebody else. Right? You can't be a tzaddik at somebody else's expense. So that's when it's your decision. But at a point when the government makes a decision that you cannot go into the gun, the gun has to be closed, the hotel program is closed, it would seem to me that according to Halakha, the category of Makat Medina would say that you are exempt from having to pay for this and you would get your money back. Now, uh, the problem is this. Even if we assume that that is the halachic categorization, can that be changed halachically by language in a contract? For example, the Pesach programs often provide that all deposits are non-refundable. Or they may say something like, uh, any deposit uh, may have a 24-hour cancellation, but, but, but if you don't cancel within 24 hours of the deposit, it becomes non-refundable. So the halakhic question gets a little more complicated. Even if pure halakha would say you don't have to pay for a canceled program, if it's a makat medina, and even if halakha would say that you even get your money back if it's a makat medina because you're not getting what you're bargaining for, the question is, does halakha allow a private clause in a contract to supersede the halakhic rules. Now, this itself is a very, very interesting idea. Obviously, private agreements cannot change halakha. You can't make an agreement to violate Shabbos. You can't make an agreement uh, to eat treif. Uh, so the whole phenomenon, oh, how can you have a private agreement that goes against halakhic rules? That's a very good question. But you have to know, and this is very, very important, that when it comes to monetary matters, the halacha is very different than when it comes to ritual matters. When it comes to something like Shabbos or something like kosher or something like marriage or divorce, which Hashem gave us very specific rules, you cannot change that by agreement. You can't have an agreement that allows me to work on Shabbos. You can't have an agreement that says, I will cook pork for my Jewish uh, worker, you know, once a week. You can't have an agreement that civil divorce will work instead of a get, right? So certainly uh, private agreements cannot violate halacha. But when it comes to monetary obligations, whether I have to pay you or not to pay you, am I chayav, meaning am I obligated, am I putter? So it's very interesting that Chazal laid down a very important rule. Davor shebemamon. Anything that concerns the payment of money, the parties can generally stipulate 
any condition that they want. So when they stipulate a condition, this is subtle, when they stipulate a condition that is against the halachic rule, they are not really going against halacha because halacha itself permits them to make that stipulation. You see, halacha incorporates the ability to make a monetary stipulation that is either greater or lesser than halachic requires. There is one big exception. There's one exception where you cannot make a monetary stipulation in violation of the halachic rule, and that is interest. Uh, the Torah prohibits charging interest on a loan made from one Jew to another Jew. So even if the contract says uh, interest, uh, it's not enforceable. We have another way of charging interest by structuring it like an investment that is called the hetcheriska. That's a very complicated uh, topic. Maybe we'll leave it for some other time. But interest is non-negotiable. You cannot have a direct promise to pay interest, but everything else you could. Again, in the language of Chazal, this is called davor shebamamon. Any condition that pertains to the payment of money, tanai kayam, the condition will be valid even if it is not the same as the halachic rule. So, what I want to do is I want to test that in this particular circumstance. I've already said that according to halacha, uh, if there's a makat medina, a widespread calamity that makes performance of uh, impossible, you're not going to have the Pesach program, the gun is closed, that normally lets you off the hook and you don't have to pay and you would even get your money back because uh, you can't blame it on what happened to you. It is something that happened to everybody and therefore you're exempt. That would be the general halachic. We'll call that the default halachic rule. That is the halachic rule if there is no agreement. Question, but what if you signed a contract that says your deposits are non-refundable? What if the God has a policy you must pay for all misstays no matter what. Would halacha legitimate that particular clause and therefore you'd have to pay? So here, uh, let me bring in another very, very complicated rule. Uh, and this rule actually derives from an area that is very, very remote from Corona and Gans and Pesach programs and uh, commercial and office leases. And it goes to the issue of gambling. I don't know if any of you like to gamble. I hope not. Uh, but uh, there's a whole halachic discussion about betting. What if I bet? I make a bet with you that uh, if a horse, you know, if your horse wins, I'll pay you $100. Your sports team wins. What is the halacha basically about gambling bets? I don't mean gambling if it's not for money. Gambling not for money, you can do what you want. But gambling debts. So the basic halacha is that gambling bets, any type of betting, is not enforceable. You don't have to honor a bet. And this is called, there's a Hebrew word for this, this is called esmachta. Esmachta basically means commitments to pay money 
that are kind of penalizing you for making the wrong choices. Meaning a bet essentially says, if my choice is incorrect, I'm going to pay you. So in a sense, although we commonly don't look at it that way, a bet is essentially a penalty clause. Now penalty clauses are very common in a lot of contracts. For example, what I just talked to you about, if you back out, you lose your deposit, right? That is a penalty clause. So the question becomes, uh, penalty clauses are esmachtas, how can they be enforceable? That's a limitation in Jewish contract law that esmachta is not enforceable. So the rule of esmachta is this. Penalty clauses are not enforceable if they're penalties, but penalty clauses are enforceable if they are reasonable compensation for losses. Now, let's apply this outside of Corona. Let's assume a regular situation that simply says a deposit is non-refundable if you try to cancel. Let's assume it's not Corona. You just cancel. Now, Lachari, you might say, why should I ever lose my deposit? That's a penalty because I'm canceling. The answer is that as long as the penalty is a reasonable reimbursement to the hotel for the expenses it incurred, because there are expenses uh, in terms of cooking, in terms of overhead. So a penalty clause is a penalty only if it's not connected to reimbursing for a loss. If it is connected to reimbursing for a loss, halacha would say it's valid because it is treated not as a penalty, not as a kanas, it is treated as a compensation. So now you can apply that same paradigm to a corona situation. I'll in, Corona would cancel my obligation to pay because it's a makat medina. But if there's a clause that says I forfeit my deposit or I must pay my rent, so the question becomes, if I pay rent even though I'm not occupying the premises, if I pay for a gun even though my kid is not going to the gun, if I pay for a Pesach program even if I'm not going to a program, if the Ganenet or the landlord or the Pesach program can show that they have incurred expenses and they need this money to cover their expenses, at that point, the contractual stipulation would not be called esmachta. It would be called compensation for damages and it would therefore be, it would therefore be valid. So the bottom line is a little confusing, but again, to summarize the, the bottom line, if you make a personal decision not to go into your office or not to send your kid to the gun or not to go for a Pesach program, you absolutely have to pay 100%, even if you didn't make a deposit, simply because that's your decision and you cannot be a tzaddik on somebody else's cheshbon. That's rule number one. Rule number two, if, on the other hand, it becomes legally impossible to have the program or to have the gun or to have the uh, accessibility to your office, then under the rule of Makat Medina, you are not obligated to pay. But if there was a contractual stipulation that you have to pay no matter what or that you forfeit your deposit if you made a deposit, 
Halacha would enforce that clause provided it is a reasonable compensation for actual losses that the other side suffered. If, on the other hand, the other side didn't suffer any losses, let's assume the cancellation was so early that they didn't spend any money on it, and it's just a matter of not getting their profit, then halacha would call that an asmachta, that is simply a penalty clause, and that would be unenforceable. So that's kind of a, a summary of the coronavirus impact on contracts, uh, but I'm, I'm really very much simplifying. Let me just point out that the post can say that because there is so much uncertainty in this halakhic area, the proper approach is to work out a settlement between all the parties in which you don't pay everything and you're not off the hook for everything, but you kind of have a loss sharing in which since we're all in this together, so we, you know, so I'll give you some of the money that you're owed and you will release me from some of the money that I owe. And this is called Pishara. This is called settlement or compromise. And that is the normal approach that we take to these matters, which is again, very, very interesting. Sometimes in monetary matters, the din, the halacha is come to a compromise and a settlement. And that brings shalom among people. Because after all, if I don't want to pay for the gun because it's a financial hardship for me to pay if my kids are not being taken care of, well, there's a financial hardship to the gun in not getting money. Meaning all of us are suffering together. And if all of us are suffering together, we should share the loss. It shouldn't be I win and you lose or you win and I lose. We try to create a situation of win-win, actually it's not win-win, it's lose-lose. In other words, we share the losses together and that is called peshara, that's called compromise. And peshara is that which brings shalom. In fact, even when you go to a basin generally, when people go to a basin, and let me add something, I'm not sure if uh, you're aware of this, Allah. If one Jew has a financial dispute with another Jew, they are not allowed to go to a secular court. That is true in the United States, it's true in Israel. We are, there's an Isser Da'oraisa to litigate matters between Jews in secular courts. We are halachically obligated to go to a basin. And only if you refuse to go to a basin can I then be given permission to go to a secular court. But to go to a secular court without first trying to go to a basin is mamash and Isser Da'oraisa. This is very important to know because a lot of religious Jews, even very religious Jews, are literally not even familiar with this halacha. And it's a very, very important halacha. Uh, of course, that itself has different questions. For example, let's assume my Jewish neighbor hits my car and causes damage. Now, technically, I as a Jew cannot sue my fellow Jew in court. That's an issue the Arisa. But if you know the way automobile accidents work, each party has insurance. So although it might be legally Ruvain is suing Shimon, it actually is Ruvain's insurance company suing Shimon's insurance company. In other words, your insurance will pay you and then they will direct you to file a lawsuit against the other guy, which will bring in his insurance company. 
So there's a very, very interesting shaila. Is that called Jew against Jew, which is Usr Da'oraisa? Or is that called insurance company against insurance company, which would be mutter? So if you ever have that particular shaila, uh, you have to con consult your uh, Orthodox rabbi for advice regarding that. Okay, so that was the first topic I wanted to talk about, the impact of the coronavirus on the contracts that are not able to be fully uh, kept. Rabbi? Yeah. Are you able to see the chat? Um, am I able to see the chat? Uh, what do I do? I, I, I see an icon with the word chat. Do I push on it? If you click it, you might see there, somebody posted a question there. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. Now I see it. Okay, yes. So then I'll read the question. So then would it be within halacha to shift the due date of the monetary obligation to after the widespread calamity is over? Or should you be completely exempt? Can a landlord halakhically tell a tenant that they can pay their rent in a few months' time when things are better or safer? Yeah, so that is certainly within halakha for the parties to shift the due date. That's, that's certainly going to be the case. Uh, but the only question is, in, in fact, that's very advisable. I, I would hope that landlords are able to uh, give their tenants uh, that, that particular uh, opportunity. Uh, the only thing is, uh, I would argue that unless the lease says you have to pay no matter what, Makat Medina would actually exempt the tenant for those, uh, those months that he was unable to occupy. But it gets tricky because if the tenant is exempt, the landlord would be able to basically look for somebody else. Uh, you know, so uh, there's a certain leverage, a de facto leverage, in which even if you don't have to pay me the rent, I don't have to renew your lease. So you may want to come up with the rent, but, but you are correct. That's a very fair way of, of negotiating. Thank you for telling me how to access the chat. Okay. Now, the, the second topic I want to talk about is uh, a much more painful and emotional topic. And that is the allocation of limited medical resources when there's not enough to go around. Now, Baruch Hashem, this was a tremendous, tremendous fear. And to a large degree, the fear did not fully materialize. Thank God it did not. But you may recall that the original justification for social distancing was a fear that if the disease would spread uh, more rapidly, the healthcare system would be so overwhelmed that it would collapse. There wouldn't be enough ventilators. There wouldn't be enough ICU, intensive care unit beds. Uh, there wouldn't be enough physicians and nurses to care for people. In fact, it's kind of a funny way of looking at it. We gotta protect the healthcare system, meaning don't get sick because the system will be endangered. It's kind of a funny way of speaking. The system is supposed to be helping us, but in a way we talked about the system as if the system was the patient. In fact, I heard Boris Johnson, the uh, British prime minister who was in the hospital for Corona, uh, he actually spoke about this. It, was, it sounded so funny to me uh, that we have to protect the system at all costs. But it is a serious issue because if God forbid, there's not gonna be enough ventilators when people need ventilators, then you have to engage in rationing. Who gets a limited resource when there's not enough uh, 
to go around. Now, again, as I say, Baruch Hashem, it has not been as bad as people thought, and we hope it should not get to a bad place, but it's certainly a fear. Uh, by the way, as a little aside, this has nothing to do with my topic. I, I do want you to, uh, maybe you've read about this, maybe you haven't. Uh, the use of ventilators in coronavirus is actually a, a bit of a a bit of a controversial uh, therapy, or at least uh, medical aid, because in New York, basically, once you're put on a ventilator, there's an 80% chance you're going to die, meaning once they get to the ventilator stage, you're a goner. And that's a little bit inexplicable. People have difficulty understanding why that's so, because ventilators are used for pneumonia, uh, it's used for all sorts of respiratory conditions, and, you know, very often, not always, people can be weaned off ventilators and you certainly don't have an 80% death rate. And some scientists have uh, speculated that ventilators in corona can actually be a cause of death. And the reason is that in the coronavirus, unlike uh, regular influenza and unlike uh, regular pneumonia, there's kind of a yellow gooky something that's swishing around there and the forced air, the high pressure air of the ventilator actually compacts and impacts and recirculates something that punctures uh, the air sacs in the lung. So many are saying that we should be very, very cautious about putting people on ventilators, especially since in Corona, people are on ventilators often for two to three weeks rather than a week or so that might be typical for pneumonia. and. Uh, Again, something to research, something to be aware of. People are saying there are other oxygen therapies that can be much more effective and much more safe than the ventilator itself. But okay, but that's kind of a side issue uh, to explore. Uh, but the issue still, whether it's ventilators or something else, uh, the issue simply becomes that of allocation of medical resources when there's not enough to go around. This is an awesome type of decision. You know, on Rosh Hashanah, on Yom Kippur, when we say Nisana Tokif, that's the prayer about the, the awesomeness of the day of judgment. So one of the most powerful statements there, you'll remember it from the Machzor, is even the angels of heaven are quaking and shaking. Mi yichyel mi yomus, who will live and who will die? And when you're allocating medical resources, triage is the word that's often used, you're making those decisions. I give it to A, B is going to die. I give it to B, A is going to die. I can't help everybody. What do I do? So let me give you two texts uh, in the Talmud that seems, seem to be relevant to this question, but not really. In fact, we will see that these texts are actually not very helpful. Text number one is a Gemara that I learned with you a few weeks ago, uh, two months ago. And that is the famous case of two people are traveling in the desert. They're lost. And one person has water that can last him till he gets to a destination. Meaning if one person drinks, he will live and the other person will die in all probability. You never know. If on the other hand, they split the water, each will be able to survive for half the trip and they're both going to die. 
So what do you do? Ben Patura, who's only mentioned once in the whole Talmud, takes the very unusual position that since your life is no better than his life, and all lives have to be treated equally, you have to split the life-saving resource so that each person can live a little bit longer, even if that means both people are going to die. That's Ben Patura. You must split the water so that everybody will gain, let's say, three days of life rather than you drinking the water and being able to survive. This is Ben Patura. However, the second opinion is the opinion of Rabbi Akiva. And Rabbi Akiva says, Chayecha Kodmin, that your, yes, there's a mitzvah to save other people, 100% true. But your life has priority over your obligation to save other people's lives. And therefore, Rabbi Akiva's argument is, you are halachically permitted, now I'll discuss whether you're obligated, you're halachically permitted to take the water and save yourself. In other words, there's enough water to get you to the destination, even if that means the other person is going to die. I think I discussed this Gemara before. It's in the second chapter of Bava Metzia. And uh, as is always the case, when there's an argument among the Tanayim of the Mishnah, the Halacha is like Rabbi Akiva. And this is the principle called Chayecha Kodmin, your life, you can give your life priority over the mitzvah to save other people. Now, there is a machlokas among the Rishonim. Are you allowed to give the other guy the water? Let's say you want to sacrifice your life to save another person. Many postkim say you are allowed to make that decision. But of course, if you think about that, you, get, you kind of get an absurd back and forth because if I'm allowed to give you the water and you, then you're allowed to give me the water, so uh, if, if both of them are altruistic, you're not really clear how you're going to end that, that particular situation. Uh, but be it as it may, this is called the principle of Chayacha Kaidman. Now, here is the problem. Chayacha Kaidman does not really address allocation in the hands of the third person. Chayacha Kaidman says, if I need a respirator and you need a respirator, and I happen to own the respirator, I can give it to me and I don't have to give it to you. That's fine. But that doesn't answer the fundamental question, who does the doctor or the hospital give it to? Same, in other words, imagine, uh, you can take the same case. Uh, two people are wandering in the desert and neither of them has water. But there's a third person who, for some reason, is not in danger himself. But again, how, why would that be? And who does he give the water to? Well, the point is, the Gemara in Baba Mitzia gives us no guidance on that crucial issue. So therefore, the Gemara in Baba Mitzia, the Machlokas Rabbi Akiva and Ben Patura, is of limited utility. So now I'm going to give you a second text that does seem to speak directly to this problem, but its application in modern society is extremely difficult. And this is a Mishnah. This is the last Mishnah in Tractate Horios. 
I think we may have mentioned this as well. Uh, Horios is a very small tractate of the Talmud. It's only 11 pages, although it's quite uh, difficult. And it deals with uh, various mistakes that a Sanhedrin can make uh, and the korbanos that it brings. But at the very end of Horios, as is often the case in Mishnah and Gemara, it goes off on a totally different topic. And the topic that it discusses is priority in saving lives. And the example would be, let's say you're a good swimmer and you're, you're a lifeguard and you're walking by, you're sitting on your chair and there are several people who are drowning. And it's likely, unfortunately, God forbid, that you know, if they're not rescued, they're going to die. Uh, they don't know how to swim. And the question is, who do you save? Meaning if you can only save some people, right? How do you, you know, you're, you're, you're the resource here. You're like the ventilator. You're like the organ. You're like the machine. You're like the ICU. You're a lifeguard. You're a life-saving resource. So the Mishnah has a system of rules that says men are saved before women. I'll try to explain why that's so. Uh, well, actually, before that, it says a Kohen is saved before a Levi, right? So if two people are screaming, help, I say, anybody a Kohen there, right? So a Kohen is saved before a Levi. A Levi is saved before a Yisrael. A Yisrael is saved before a Mamzer, an illegitimate a child. A, um, a man is saved before a woman. In other words, it gives classifications essentially based on mitzvos. The more mitzvos you have, the more priority there is in saving you. And then it goes on and says that if somebody is a Talmud Chacham, even if he's a Yisrael, he has Kedima, even if he's a Mamzer, he has priority over the uh, over the Amoretz, who's even a Kohen Gadol. So we will call this, just to summarize, without going into the details, we will call this priority based on a certain status within the Jewish community. Meaning a person has a status, Kohen, Levi, Israel, and the status, Talmud Chacham, and the status determines who we save when we cannot save everybody. Now, you can understand that the poskim have said, it's very unusual, they have actually said, we don't apply this Mishnah in modern society simply because we are unable to make these discriminations. Number one, we can't really decide who is a Talmud Chacham. Uh, we can't decide, we can't assume that the Kohen is doing more mitzvos than the non-Kohen. So Rav Moshe Feinstein himself wrote that Bizman Hazer, we do not apply those particular rules. So the question becomes, what's the alternative? What, what is the halachic model that we do apply? So here, what's interesting is, this is Rav Moshe Feinstein, Zichorno uh, Lebracha, uh, Rav Asher Weiss, who's a very big posek, a Hasidish posek, in Ramot, who's, who's, who's alive. Uh, Rav Herschel Schechter of Yeshiva University, who's 
been very, very active in these corona psukim. Uh, Rabbi Dr. Avram Steinberg here in Yushalayim, who's a, both a doctor and a posek of medical halacha, they basically say that halacha legitimates the medical triage model. Because let's not think about halacha for a moment. What do doctors do? What do hospitals do? So essentially, uh, what hospitals do is, and this is based on military triage, but it's medical triage is very same, they allocate the resource based on the probability of success. Let's imagine you have two patients before you. Both of them need ventilators. And both of them are likely to die unless they have the breathing support. One is a 25-year-old who is otherwise healthy except for the corona respiratory problem. The other is a 75-year-old person who suffers from diabetes, heart condition, and the like. And there's a strong likelihood, you never know, but there is a strong likelihood that even with the ventilator support, he is likely to die. Who do I give the ventilator to? So medical triage says you allocate the resource where it will do the most good. And the person who is most likely, and of course these are judgments, the person who is most likely to recover gets the ventilator ahead of the person who is less likely to recover. Now, again, I want to emphasize something. This is a little tricky. This does not mean young people have priority over old people, in halacha at least. Just because you're young and you have more years, we're not measuring life expectancy overall. In other words, we actually don't say, this is a very subtle point, we don't say, oh, the young guy, if he gets better, will have 60 years. And the old guy, at most, will have 20 years. That makes no difference. If both of them will recover from the condition and not die from this illness, then whether you have five years or whether you have 20 years, we treat them all the same. Okay, this is not a rule that favors young over old. But it is a rule that favors healthy over pre-existing conditions. Now, this is the medical triage rule, except medical triage might favor young over old. Halacha does not, but putting aside that one difference, halacha basically says you allocate the resource to the person who is most likely to benefit from the resource even if that means the other person is going to die. And halacha legitimates that triage model. But here is where you get a problem. Let's say somebody comes into the ICU or the emergency room and they're not in good shape. They're 75, they're overweight, they have diabetes, they have heart problems. The probabilities are they're not gonna survive with the ventilation, but there's a chance and I put them on the ventilator. And then two hours later, 
healthy 25-year-old person comes in. Now, again, if they both would be in the hospital at the same time, Halacha would tell me I allocate it to the 25-year-old. But what if the ventilator was already allocated to the patient who has less of a chance to survive? Do I take him off the ventilator to give it to the person who has a greater chance to survive? So here is where you get into very, very, very difficult halachic decisions. Many poskim say that even if the initial allocation decision would be based on the person that has the best chance to recover. Once the resource was given to the person, even with the lesser chance of recovering, it becomes his resource. And to remove it from him would be murder. And if it's murder, you cannot murder one person to save another person. So I see I have a, a question. Uh, how does the principle of he who saves one person's life is considered to have saved the whole world relate to this? Uh, what about it's, it's yourself and someone else? Does Pikuach Nefesh apply? Again, these are very, very good questions. Uh, you're 100% correct that saving any person is as if you save the whole world, even if the person has only five minutes to live. But you have to understand, when you have a resource and only one person can benefit, uh, meaning you don't have enough to give everybody, then you have to make a decision. Meaning, as a general rule, we never make a decision that one person's life is uh, more worthy than another person's life. You cannot kill, remember we talked about organ donation, you can't remove an organ and kill a donor, even if he's brain dead, in order to save another person's life. But when you have only a single ventilator, you have to make a decision unless you want to go totally with randomness. So most postgame do say, yeah, the other question, what about if it's yourself and someone else? So that's Rabbi Akiva. That's Rabbi Akiva's opinion that you are allowed halachically to give priority to your life. So most postgame actually say, once you have allocated the resource, even to the less healthy chola, you cannot remove it. I did see that Rabbi Herschel Schechter of Yeshiva University took the position that if you know at the time you're giving the first chola, the machine, that there are likely to be people who come in later who are in a greater, better medical condition, then, in a sense, when you allocated the machine, you were doing so conditionally and in a limited fashion. And therefore, the first guy never acquired, so to speak, a right to the machine. So Rav Schechter actually does permit the disconnection of the machine. On the other hand, I, I, I feel in my own research that that is a minority opinion. And uh, those allocation decisions have to be final uh, and, and the like. Uh, oh yeah, I'm sorry, I see another question. Uh, wouldn't this mean that younger would have more priority? Well, uh, there is of course an argument that younger people 
might have more priority because they could have more children, more years, etc. But on the other hand, when you're evaluating the value of a life, you have to look at each life as something of infinite significance. Meaning, you don't just look at people as machines that produce future generations. You have to look at a life uh, as something that is intrinsically valuable. For example, if you had two people, each of whom were medically equal, and one was infertile and one was fertile, uh, you know, you're raising an interesting question. We actually would not give priority to the fertile person, although he may, he'll be able to produce future generations, because life has to be judged in terms of itself. It can't be judged in terms of what it will produce elsewhere. That's kind of up to God. First of all, even people who are younger may not necessarily have children. Uh, they may die. You know, young people might die before old people sometimes. They may get into an automobile accident or the like. So uh, your point is well taken. And, and again, if I would be writing the rules, I might assume that perhaps younger people should be given priority. But in halacha, it seems that we don't directly look at age, except as it impacts on the ability to, uh, to recover. Uh, so this is kind of the uh, issue. Uh, big, big machlokas. Once the resource was allocated, uh, are we allowed to withdraw it in favor of the person that is more, uh, more benefited uh, by the particular uh, treatment? In fact, some people have even taken the position that even if you haven't given the machine to the person yet, uh, you have to follow a line, whatever that would mean, meaning to say if you have uh, people who register in the hospital, you have to allocate a resource based on first come, first serve. Now that's an extreme view because that basically says even by the, even though at the time I'm allocating the ventilators, I'm putting people on the ventilators, I have all of these patients in front of me, I got to follow the priority of, it's not even clear what you're looking at, who registered first, who walked into the room first, etc. So we do have these different views, meaning we have three different views. Rav Schechter is the extreme view. Even if you hook somebody on the ventilator, you can take them off if a patient with a better chance of recovery comes in. That's view number one. View number two, once you put somebody on the ventilator, they must uh, stay on it until such time as uh, they die or whatever it would be. Uh, view number three is even if they weren't put on the ventilator, if they came in first, whatever that would mean, that would give them the right. So we do have uh, different opinions in terms of these priorities of allocation of medical resources. Uh, this is gonna come up again uh, when uh, Baruch Hashem uh, a vaccination is being developed. Um, I think the most promising vaccination for Corona is being developed in a few different places, but Oxford University uh, is very, very close to developing a vaccine. There's already been some successful uh, experiments on rhesus monkeys, and they hope optimistically, Be'ezras Hashem, that there should be a vaccine uh, by September. That would be mamash, very, very uh, wonderful. 
know, who knows, things can, all sorts of things can happen. In addition, we have the medical treatments for people already infected. I'm sure uh, as Chabad students, you should take great pride in uh, the doctor, I don't remember his name, uh, it's, a, it's a Russian name, uh, the Chabad physician who works for Satmir, who was the first one who kind of identified the uh, malaria drugs as very, very helpful for treating uh, patients. And although the medical establishment hasn't fully embraced it, more and more doctors are utilizing it. Uh, but both in terms of the vaccines and in terms of the drugs, there are going to be shortages, meaning there is not enough, there will not be enough vaccine initially, and there will not be enough of these drugs to meet the demand. And the allocation decisions are going to have to be made. So uh, we're going to have to revisit this very, very difficult medical rationing uh, process. But again, Be'ezrat Hashem, uh, we pray that Hashem should uh, bring the Geula. Uh, we won't need vaccinations, we won't need drugs. Ani Hashem Rofecha, you know, we're the month of Eeyore. The month of Eeyore, many say, it's a famous Hasidic thought, maybe you heard it, is Rashi Tevot. It is an abbreviation. Aleph Yud Yud Resh. Ani is the Aleph. Yud Yud is Hashem, right? Hashem's name. Rofecha, I am God who is your healer. He is the ultimate source of refuah. May the Rofei Kol Basar bring a refuah to Kol Yisrael and the entire world. So it's good seeing you and really thank you for, for your questions as always. And uh, God willing, we will meet uh, next week as well. Kol Tov. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi. You're amazing. Thank you. Shalom, shalom, shalom. You're the best. Jamie's your biggest fan. Oh, he left. Now what? Do we have to leave and come back? Are we supposed to leave Yes. Hi, Dora. Hello. How are you guys doing? Good. Good. Oh my gosh, Chaya Leia, I didn't even notice you were here. She needed to try last. Oh, you can't, I can't hear. Hi, Jamie. Hello, how are you? Hello. Good. I'm not, I don't want my camera on because I'm, I'm really about to jump in the shower, but I just wanted to <laughs> start the day off right. It's still the morning here. I, so. Yeah, what time is it by you? Probably like... It's, uh, it's, it's barely the morning. It's 11 o'clock, but hey, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Quarantine times. <laughs> yeah. Is that your hood? Oh, are you still in Jerusalem? Yeah, this is the Maya Note apartment. Oh, cute. I like the yeah. painting. You guys have a cool couch. It's cooler than our couch. Yeah, it's a fancy couch. It came with the apartment. Wow, it's pretty cool. Yeah, and then this window, if it wasn't dark, you can't see anything even if I opened it. But this window opens, and we have a really cool view of the Knesset. Wow, look at you. It's like the best place to be for coronavirus. And we're like across the street from Rifka Marga. Aww. So you can get your mama love. Yeah, right? <laughs> cute. Well, I'm going to hop on later. It's good to see you. Nice to see you, too. Your picture is so cute. You look so pretty, the both of you. Thank you. Baruch Hashem.
All right. See you later. Bye. Bye. Hey, is anyone here? Yes. Hello. Hello. Hey. Why am I Kiki Farber? Are you Kiki Farber? No, that's not me. Someone else was Kiki Farber. I thought it was me. Hiya, hey. Hi. Can everyone turn on their videos? It's so hard to talk with. I can't see people. Oh, there is a Kiki Farber. Hi. Sorry, I thought it was me. I'm Kiki. That's funny. <laughs> Hi, Chaya. How are you? Thank God. Good. How are you? Good. Baruch Hashem. Baya was so cute today. Oh, she loves it. Jamie, how are you holding up? I am good. Look at this fancy light Hanasia has. She's sitting over here. I hope soon you can come to me for Shabbos. I hope I know. So. I'm telling you, it's crazy. Today, people are all over the place. Yeah. Jordan, what's up? Hi. Turn. I can't hear you. I'm going to unmute you. What's up? Good. Good to I'm see you. You too. Hi, Amy. I'm Kiki. Nice to meet you. There you go. Hi, nice to meet you too. I'm from South Africa in Johannesburg. So nice. Were you in Mayano ever? Yeah, I came 20... Hang on, I'll figure it out. 2017, wow. I think. So nice. Leia, yeah. hi. I'm so glad you're here. This is a mashup of Mayano alum and Mayano and my and Chabad Efrat people. Who's Mushka T? You can be wearing pajamas, whatever, bathing suits, all good. Just I don't care to see your cat, your bed. 
Baby. Oh, hey, baby. Hey, Nora. So good to see you. How are you feeling? You too. I'm doing well. How are you? Good to see you. Long time to see. I'm going to start in a minute. I just want to know who I'm talking to. Who's Kiki Farber? I can't hear you or see you, but you have the same name as me. I feel like... Hi, sorry. I'm just, I'm using my phone for notes, so you're not going to see oh. me anyway. Are you a Maya Node alum also? No, I'm a Maya Node wannabe. That's so nice. I got so confused. I thought I put my name in as Kiki Farber, and I was like, that's so weird. Why did I write my name? Who changed my name? Esty, what's up? Hi. Hi. And Leah, are you here with us? Hi, yes, I am. Okay, awesome. Whoever doesn't mind having their video on, it makes it easier for me to teach. I don't care if you're not listening. It's just easy to see some faces. The hardest thing about speaking on Zoom is like not knowing, not seeing anyone or like having a reaction and knowing if anyone is like following you or not. That's our biggest challenge. All right, so excited to be doing this course. Um, so it's going to be a course that will continue. Today will be, I don't want to say intro because it's not an intro at all, but it'll be, yeah, we'll see if we get into the dynamics of the spheros in our personality and self-refinement yet. All right, so as an intro, I know you had SD Arnav last week tell you about spheros Omer. Were anyone, any of you here last week with SD? Okay, awesome. So as an intro, oh, sorry, I'm going to link the sheets first in the chat. So I have a Google, let me just link it. We have some source sheets. Um, a PDF or a Google Doc, what's easier? I guess it doesn't. I'll link the PDF for now. And if you want the Google Doc, so you can copy it and write on it. You can have that as well. There we go. So it's two pages. The first page is some source, two sources. And the second page is a chart that you can help you as a visual for the spheros. I don't know how to use the whiteboard. I haven't used it yet. Also, does anybody know when class ends? Is it exactly at 10 or is it 5-2? Like, do you have a break, usually a couple minute break? This is our last class. Oh, okay. So, so it, I, yeah, it, it ends at 10, but like, I'm sure you can go over a little. No, I'm going to end at 10. All right. Yeah. I'm, I'm also the whiteboard. Okay. We'll do that next time. Does anyone know how to use the whiteboard? Can't find it. Video settings, maybe? Okay. All right. Let's learn. So let's start with the word sephirot. We're learning about the Kabbalah of you, which is our spiritual makeup, which some of us might know as the 10 sephirot, which is the same word as the sphira to Omer, which is what we're going through now. So the root word of sephira actually has three different meanings in the Jewish language. Um, anyone know any of them? Samach peresh. Sephira to Omer. Does anybody know what that means? Counting? Yes, counting, exactly. So one, one meaning of sephira is counting um, and enumerating. That's from the word sephira to Omer. 
Another one is sipur or lisaper, which means a story or to give over something, to communicate something. Um, and the third one is a sapphire, sapir. It's mentioned in the Torah. All, these, all three of these are mentioned with the same root word in the Torah. Sapir means to illuminate, and specifically the sapphire. It's brought down in the, um, it's, uh, there's an opinions that say that the light in the ark was a sapphire that illuminated the ark, um, and in other places in the Torah as well. It's an illuminating stone. So we have these three different meanings of the word sephira, and then the way we're using sephirot are powers or shining illuminations. Um, and we're going to learn about what the spheros are within our human self, within the world, and within Hashem, and why this matters. Hold on one second. I'm going to go back. Pull something up. So we, the reason we called the, these days a sphera to Omer is um, we are counting towards the receiving of the Torah, 49 days. But on a deeper level, the Kabbalah teaches us um, that we are refining our selves, that when we left Mitzrayim, we weren't on a spiritual, some of us may have learned that we weren't on a spiritual level to be receptive, to receive the Torah, to have any sort of relationship with Hashem. And each of these seven, 49 days, we are working on refining ourselves so that we can actually have a relationship with Hashem and receive the Torah 49 days later. And there are, as we will learn, seven emotive attributes that we have within us. And each of these, each week of Sphere Omer, we are working on one of these emotions and building blocks of our personality and who we are in our makeup and refining each of these over the course of that week. But throughout the week, we are working on a um, harmony. The, each of these seven attributes are further divided into seven other attributes because each emotion is not just a one-dimensional emotion. For example, our kindness is not a one-dimensional. It includes, in kindness, is included a blend of all the other seven attributes. So on each night, we are working, on each week of Spirit to Omer, we are working on one of these attributes. And on each day of that week, the seven days of that week, we're working on a different, um, of the, one of the dimen part, dimension of that attribute. Um, and that way, completely um, refining our, or trying to refine that attribute or that emotion within us. And then, so seven times seven is 49. And that's how we reach the 49 days of the Omer. But we're going to really break that down further and understand what we're actually doing and what the spherot are and how we can refine ourselves through the spherot. So, so when we say the word spherot, we are saying all three words at once. We are saying the counting, the illuminating, and the, I guess we're speaking about the divine revelations. When we say the words that ten spherot, we are speaking about ten unique divine revelations. Um, any questions? And so the connect, the sphere to Omar is really the bridge between leaving Egypt when we are still, even though we left Egypt physically, we are still spiritually enslaved in some way and working up from that low level to be able to work as much as we can on ourselves um, throughout the 49 days. And then Matan Torah is when we finish doing whatever we can, we are Matan, we are receiving as a gift the rest of it, the 50th level, the rest of the, we do what we can in life and Hashem does the rest. So the 49 days is us putting in our effort. Obviously we can't perfect our personalities and perfect every one of our attributes, but we put in the most that we can. And on Matan Torah and Shavuot, it's from Hashem pulling us the rest of the way forward. 
Um, so it's allowing us to transcend a, a level that no human, that as, on our own, we can never ascend. Anmatan Torah Hashem bridges that gap and brings us up to a level that we on our own could never reach, but only because we've already put in the work in this, during the 49 days before, and therefore we are fitting to receive this gift, Matan, just receiving something that's beyond our reach. Um, and that's in summary of the three stages. So in Torah, and especially in Chassidus and Kabbalah, Pesach, Sfirah to Omer, the time between Pesach and Shavuos, and then the 50th day after leaving Egypt are very connected. There are three parts of one greater picture, which I'm pretty sure that SD taught you last week if you were there. That's just a brief summary. So what are Sefirot? Sefirot are the building blocks of how Hashem creates the world. They are 10 um, divine powers or divine manifestations of Hashem's light. Um, in welcome someone someone new, Natali Cohen. So these 10 manifestations of Hashem's light reflect, and we have three different models for the spheros. And it's important to differentiate them. And we're gonna focus on the model that we have within inside of us, which we actually refer to as the 10 soul powers. But it's important to know all three models. So in Kabbalah, we the word Kabbalah actually, we, we know it means to receive, but in the root word in the Torah, Kabbalah actually means uh, correspondence. Like the word in Hebrew, makbil, when something parallels something else, when two things correspond to one another, that is Kabbalah. So throughout this course and throughout learning Hasidus, you'll find that everything in Kabbalah um, is, is, is something that corresponds to something else. And that's what a Kabbalist does. They know the inner workings of the Torah and God and, and our soul so well that they can find the parallels and the correspondings to find what corresponds in the world to different parts of Hashem and Hashem's names. The main thing that we always tie back into is the tetragrammaton, Hashem's four-letter name of yod Hey vav and Hey. That is something that we find parallel, the Kabbalists find makbilin parallels to within the four worlds, the four realms, the four everything. And then we also find the 10 spheros in the name of Hashem, yod Hey vav and Hey, um, in groups or individual spheros. So that's just an idea of what Kabbalah is. So one of the parallels and the main parallel that we find in Kabbalah, if you look in your source sheets, um, we see that we, Hashem is unfathomable. The essence of who Hashem is beyond, as he is, without any connection to the world, is something that we can never depict, ex describe, explain. Welcome, Eva. Hi. So glad you're here. Um, and we can't relate to that. But as Hashem creates the world, he depicts his divine light and puts it into the 10 spherot. So I'm going to just break down the 10 spherot into three different models as, they're, as we um, relate to them. So the first or one of the three models that we use the 10 spherot are, for are Hashem's lights. Hi, Eva. Thanks for putting your video on. It's so much easier to teach. Are Hashem's um, divine manifestations, Hashem's divine lights. Um, those are the 10 spherot, the illuminations and the word sapir, the illuminations of Hashem and how he um, gives, manifests his light in 10 different ways um, and through 10 different conduits. Now, it's important to know that each one of these 10 spherot, oh, it's Lauren. Hi, Lauren. Welcome. Each of these 10 spherot um, consists of a light and a vessel, in Hebrew, or and a keli. And this is really important to know because we have this within us ourselves. So the or is just the unbridled, infinite light of Hashem. But in order for it to find a different expression and to relate to us and express himself to us like a sipur, the word sfirah, to, to communicate with us in different ways, 
that divine light takes on, Hashem's divine light takes on 10 unique forms in our world. And that, otherwise, we would just relate to Hashem in in a general light of Hashem without it being channeled into certain things. It wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to contain it. And we wouldn't have, we probably wouldn't have differences in people. We would all be one big blob of one person. So in order to create different types of people, different sections of the world, different levels of creation, Hashem created the Sfirot and took a general, this, and divided his light into 10 vessels to contain his light in 10 different ways. And the, the light is then depicted to us in the form of the vessel. So there is the ore of all the Kalim, of all these Sfirot, which is just the infinite light that's equal just Hashem's illumination, connection, um, emanation, manifest, and the vessel, the keli of each of the sphero is what makes them different. The keli is how that sphera, how that light of Hashem manifests and translates in this world. And that is 10 different ways. You may have heard of these 10 sphero in the, char- in the source that I linked in the chat um, is a picture of the sphero. Um, and how they, how it, how it, hi Michelle, Amy's mom, welcome again. There's a picture of all the spirits, so I'll go over them very quickly. These 10 manifestations of Hashem's light are the three intellectual manifestations, um, which the word Kabbalah, again, the Kabbalists um, correspond them to each of the spirits to a different part of the human body. So the three, intellect, the three intellectual um, manifestations of Hashem's light parallel inside of us, the right brain, the right hemisphere of the brain, the left hemisphere of the brain, and the cerebellum. That's Chachma, Bina, and Da. So our three intellectual faculties, or Hashem's three manifestations of intellect. And then there are seven emotive manifestations of Hashem's divine light, which are kindness, limitation, um, harmony, or a blend of the two, um, perseverance, humility, or loyalty, um, bonding and connection, and then royalty or majesty or machus as we call it so there are 10 set three intellectual faculties or manifestations of hashem's light and seven emotive manifestations of hashem's light and these are the 10 ways in which hashem relates to creation relates to us and this is kind of what we get to know of hashem our purpose is to emulate hashem to be close to hashem um, to know hashem and to be in as sync as much as we can with Hashem's view and Hashem, our Kabbalah's purpose is for us to see the world from Hashem's perspective. The most we can get to it, the closest we can get to knowing Hashem is through, as he depicts himself through these 10 manifestations of the 10 Sphero. So that is the first model of the 10 Sphero, which is kind of hard to grasp because we don't, we don't see Hashem. So how are we supposed to understand his 10 Sphero? Me, sorry, yes, I'm doing two shears at this No worries. Um, so it's hard to, it's hard to um, imagine or depict Hashem's spheros because they're so removed from us. How do you relate to something that you can't see or can't relate to? Um, and we'll get to that in a minute. So that's the, so when we speak about the spherot of Hashem, it's kind of, for me, it's like words that I just say, but I don't actually, I don't know what I'm talking about. I just, I can tell it to you, but it's hard to imagine it. The next mode of the spheros is in, depicted in the 10 utterances when Hashem created the world. So Hashem created the world in 10 Asara Mamarim, the 10, and we see this again, the Kabbalim, the Makbilim, the parallels, we see them in the 10 um, commandments and in the 10 utterances. When Hashem created the world, they parallel these 10 stages of development. So in order 
for Hashem to create a world, to get from God is everywhere in infinity to our physical reality, Hashem um, went through a series of contractions, which were 10 steps of creation, which were the 10, same as a 10, um, the same pattern of the 10 Sphero, except it wasn't a unified model where all of them were at once. It was a successional, uh, successive model. So in the model of creation where Hashem created the world or constantly creates the world, he follows um, in the creative mode, I guess, of the Sphero. It is not all at once, all the Sphero as entire entity like Hashem is or like we include all of the Sphero. It was a step-by-step, -step. first Chachma, then one Bina, then Dad, and it went through the gradual Seder development. So it's a developmental um, mode of using these Sphero to create. And we as humans as well, whenever we create anything, we also go through this step-by-step um, -step developmental stage of the spheros. We go, first we have an idea of what we are going to do or say or feel or act. And then we expound on that idea and what it's going to look like. Then we connect with it and decide if we're actually going to go through with it. And then we act on it through our either going towards it or away from it with chesed and gura. And anytime we express anything outside of ourselves or communicate anything. So it's, this is the communicative one when, um, the word sphere means communication or story or to give over something. Whenever we're expressing something outside of our own self, we are communicating it through the spheros. We are going through first the idea of it, what we want, then the emotional side of it, what, how we're going to go about it, and then actually doing it through the other, the doing spheros. Um, so that is the developmental, I guess, step-by-step -step mode of using the spheros. And it's really important and cool to be able to relate this back to your life and realize that every interaction outside of yourself goes through the Spiros model as well. So that is the 10, like if you can, it's easy to remember by the 10 utterances that created the world in the, in Genesis and reflecting back to the, that was the 10 building blocks of creation. And then there's also Kabbalists also parallel the seven days of creation to the seven emotions and how each of the days of creation was depicting one of the specific seven um, emotional attributes, Chesed, Gvura, Tiferes, and they find great parallels and very beautiful parallels in each of the days of creation and what was created and the sphera of that day. And Kabbalah also tells us that the day of the week that we're born on um, has a lot to do with the sphera that is our job to rectify. So if you're born on a Sunday and Sunday is the sphera of Chesed, that your life's mission, one part of your life's mission is to correct or to rectify and work with the sphere of chesed. That you might have challenges in your life presented with love and relationships or being either being too forthcoming in love and relationships and, or the opposite. If you were born maybe on a Monday, then you might struggle with gevura, with setting boundaries or with having too many boundaries. That is your tikkun. So we find a lot of parallels with seven days of creation and the days of creation and this developmental stage of the spheros. So we discussed two models, the 10 modes that Hashem expresses himself to us and relates to creation with as an entire entity. So the 10 ways, I guess, that are in, found in the letters of Hashem's name, yod hei vavane Then we find the way that Hashem created the world through the 10 spheros in order to get from nothing to something. Each of the worlds that, um, each of the contractions, each of the worlds went through a uh, successional stage of the 10 spheros. If anyone has questions, please chat them. Oh, I see some chats or ask me. Oh, someone asked for the source sheet. I posted it in a PDF right on top of your message. Do you see it? 
If it doesn't work, I can send you a link to the Google Docs. And the third model of the Spheros, um, you can also talk if you, like unmute yourself if you have a question as well. I see some more people joined. I don't know if I... All right. Um, the third model is where we're going to spend most of this course discussing because that's the most relatable one and that's what we're here to work on. We don't have to busy ourselves with, um, even though it's important to know how Hashem created the world and all that, what we're really trying to work on is ourselves and bettering ourselves and finding ourselves in order that we can affect the world and have a relationship with Hashem. So the way it works is like this. You may have, you were in this, anyone here in the summer program, Eva and Jamie were, but I don't think, Jordan, sorry. I don't think I did it with Jordan's. I think I only did it with Eva. So, and you may have heard this. Um, Hashem, in order for us to even relate to Hashem or relate to anybody, what, to empathize with somebody or to understand anybody, you need to be able to tap into a similar experience. If someone tells you something that they went through that you have no idea what they're talking about, you need to, in order to empathize, you might have to pull out of yourself how you would feel if you were in that situation or something similarly painful or exciting that you went through to relate to them. That's what relating means. It means relating it back to yourself so that you can relate to the other person. If someone describes, if a woman describes labor, a man could never understand or relate or empathize with labor because he can't relate it to anything similar. Like they'll try to describe different pain that a man goes through, but he'll never be able to fully relate. So in order for us to relate to Hashem and the 10 spheros, there has to be some sort, of, um, some sort of mechanism where we parallel Hashem. And that's exactly how Hashem created the world. And we see in the first chapter, in, in, your, in your source sheets that I gave you, in the first chapter of Genesis, when Hashem creates the world, he turns to the angels with different, different opinions and he says, let us make man in our image. And some sources say he was speaking about himself in a plural form, or he was saying in the image of angels or God, who are all made with the 10 spheros. And Hashem's idea, according to Kabbalah, to make man in his image is the only way that man can ever understand me is if he is a reflection of me. And in that, the next, so let's read through those verses. One sec. So in Bereshit, um, Hasuk Chavav, Hashem says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Two words. And from there, the Kabbalists or Talmud also infers that we are made in Hashem's image, both physically and spiritually. So our physical makeup parallels Hashem's image and our spiritual makeup parallels Hashem's image as well, which is very important. Not just, you might think that your soul parallels Hashem, but your body, what does that have to do with God? That's maybe like a monkey. And we could say it's further, it's as far from the truth for in Judaism to say that we are made like a monkey we are made in Hashem's image. Every limb of our body parallels an attribute of Hashem's godly image. Every, and the Kabbalah draws parallels for every organ and every limb in our body and which godly um, attribute that parallels. Each part of our brain, every limb and every organ, every system. So the seven attributes are paralleled in the limbs of our body, the right arm, the left arm, and also each of the systems in our body, our respiratory system. We won't, I don't know if we'll cover the systems or today, but it's fascinating how much we learn about God and Hashem and Hashem's attributes and our soul through understanding the systems and how many parallels there are. And nothing is just evolution, evolutionized from animals. God forbid that we would say that. In fact, it is the furthest from the truth. So Hashem created us in his image. And then so that, let's go to the next verse. And then God created man in his image. 
B'Tselem Elohim, and he repeats, B'Tselem Elohim bar also, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So there, questions? We're breathing. So this was so important in order that we can even have a relationship with Hashem, that every attribute that Hashem relates to us is reflected within us. Anything that we speak about with Hashem in the Torah, that Hashem saw or Hashem beheld or Hashem was angry, Hashem was jealous, Hashem loved or Hashem, any, any attribute that it speaks about um, in the Torah, we have within us in some form, in an image form. So I'll explain what that is. We're not a carbon copy of God because we're not God. We are human beings and Hashem is Hashem. Hashem is God, a creator of the world. We're not creators of the world. So what is the difference? The example that I, I have a couple of examples. The one, I'll share the, my favorite ones um, that really depict it really well. When you are making, and also if we're all just copies of Hashem, what makes us different? How are we not all clones if we're all made in this image? So the way that Hashem copied us into and made us in his image is Hashem relates the world with the 10 spherot and Hashem created us physically and spiritually made with these 10 spherot, the built these 10 attributes. And we call in inside of us, they're called the kohot, our powers or kohot nefesh, the powers of our soul. So Hashem took his, just like um, a photocopy or an image, a picture. When you take a photograph of a scene, you have the exact image of the scene, but you're not, you don't have the scene. You have an image of the scene. So you can show that photograph to someone and they can see all of the details of the scene, but they don't have the scene. You can't replicate the view that you're seeing and copy that. If Hashem would have copied us in that way, then we would maybe be Hashem. If Hashem would take the scene itself and replicate it. However, he, took, he didn't say, let us create a Hashem in his, himself, in his image. So it's sort of like a photo version. We are the limited photo version. A photo wallet depicts so many similarities, it's just a photograph. So it's a much more limited version. That's one example. And now to further that, if we are all a photograph of Hashem, or as Hashem relates to the world in the 10 spheros, Hashem photographed that inside of us, and we each have um, those exact, every, and every one of those 10 spheros that Hashem has, we have inside of us, and every one of the details, those spheros are so general. Love and chesed is only the mother emotive and um, emotion for all positive emotion. There's, there's thousands of positive emotions we experience, joy, excitement, love, romantic love, parental love, familial love, friend, all the details and nuances of magnificence and joy and pleasure, all of those fall under the category of chesed. So there are thousands of emotions and all of them, all the emotions that we have are merely a photograph or an image of the emotions that Hashem acts with. For example, Hashem doesn't have eyes, but we have eyes. Hashem doesn't have eyes, but Hashem sees everything that goes on. Hashem doesn't have hands, but Hashem guides and everything that happens in the world. So to depict how that is, another example I love is a doll. I actually had a doll here. Anyways, when you hold a doll and you say, these are the doll's eyes, where, and you ask a little kid, where are the doll's hands? There are the doll's hands. Does the doll have hands? Well, what are hands? Hands are things that can grab and hold. And if you ask someone, what do hands do? It can hold something. It can grab something. It has five fingers. A doll doesn't have hands. A doll has a plastic version of hands. But we call it hands because it resembles likeness to hands. The only likeness it has is that it has five things sticking out and we call it a hand. 
when it when you point to a doll's eyes what do eyes do they see dolls can't see but they have eyes so everything about a doll we call it the same thing that a human has but it doesn't even do the a fraction of what a human can do we can't even get close to comparing it but there's some likeness it looks like an eye and in that way we're created in Hashem's image Hashem so it's not that Hashem copies us and Hashem has eyes and we have realized and Hashem can't see it's the opposite it's Hashem has the real seeing and the real eyes and the real hand and what we have is a very 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 limited likeness of that like a photograph version or a doll version a very very limited version of that it resembles our sight resembles Hashem's sight Hashem sees everything we see what's around us and what is within our peripheral vision but Hashem sees everything so we have the limited physical I guess contracted version of seeing and of eyes so when we say Hashem's hand and we imagine a giant hand like we have it's not even similar Hashem's hand is not a giant hand it does so much more Hashem's hand guides every single creation in the world our hand can reach whatever it can reach when we're awake so in that respect every single description about Hashem we have within us but in a much more limited version like the image so when you say Hashem created us in our image we can now understand what we mean in a more in an image version in a limited version we have the limited version of everything that Hashem has is included inside of us but in a much more finite way so we don't have the real hands Hashem is the real hand we have the human version of a hand sight for Hashem is what real true sight is seeing everything and seeing everything that will happen and did happen and everything about everything we have a limited version of that and from our we can infer so much about Hashem from knowing about ourselves and that is what it says I believe in Eov that Eov said that from my flesh I can perceive God the only way that we can understand Hashem is through our own flesh through our own human experiences when we observe ourselves and we understand what sight is from our own ex human experiences and fully real um, tapping into the depth of our experience we can reflect that upwards to the higher sphero, to Hashem's sphero, and understand. And that's what Kabbalah tells us to do, to parallel, to correspond our experiences to Hashem, to understand that it's a similar but much more infinite version um, of that. The way that the spheres work above are yeah, similar but more, way more infinite, infinitely more infinite version of what we are experiencing. Any questions? So let's go back to the photocopy image or the I guess the, um, Jamie, is that a hand raised? Nope, it was clapping. <laughs> so the, let's go back to the image version. So if we, Hashem took a screenshot of his spheros or how Hashem relates the world and then copy that into every human being, what makes us different and unique? If all of us are just an image copy of Hashem and we all have within us all the 10 spheros of Hashem, in every one of us. What makes us unique and different and sets every human apart from one another is um, that every one of us have different amounts. Although we each have all 10 spheros, obviously we have our chachma, our bina, our dat, we probably couldn't function if we were missing any of these. We wouldn't be able to function as a human being or we'd be a really messed up human being without one of them. We all include all, we all have all of the spheros. However, each human being and no two humans have the same amounts or concentrate, I like to use the word concentration of all of the spheros. Each one of us, our own unique blend of strength and 
capability, uh, power in more sphere than others. And to depict this as an example, if you take an image in the photocopy machine, let's say the image on your next page of the Sphero, right? We all have the exact same spiritual makeup. However, you can photocopy the image in an infinite amount of times and you can, um, in each, in each, each of the spheres are a different color actually. And that Kabbalah gives each sphere another color depending on what the sphere's function is. In each photocopy, imagine you were to photocopy each one with some with a lot of red in that in part of the image. So you can make an infinite amount of the same exact picture, but the color concentration, I don't know if you're following what I'm saying, but the color would be completely different in each one of them. It can be a lot of green hues in one, a lot of red hues in one, very little yellow, a lot of yellow. So you can have the same makeup, the same image, but the amount of strength in each of these spheros is completely unique and different to each person. So none of us, no one can say, well, I'm only chesed or I'm only gura. We all are a really unique blend. And some of us have strength in a certain sphera and we struggle with another sphera. And some of us are very passionately on one side of the, of the axis, axi or ax, axi or a different one. So that is what creates us unique. And that is really our struggle and mission in life as humans to um, to refine ourselves and to work on being a complete unit of Sphero and to balance out all of our spheres so that we can truly depict and emulate Hashem and be in Hashem's image by learning about the spheros and working on them and saying, well, I really excel. I'm pretty good at chesed, but I have a lot to work on self-restraint and including self-restraint within our chesed and going through each of the spheros and seeing how can I perfect that sphera? How can I be more proactive and, and um, goal attaining and achieve my goals like Netzach? How can I be more humble like Hode? How can I bond more with people or with the things that I do like Yisod? How can I internalize what I learn like Da'at? How can, at each one of the spheres we can, there's, those are just one example, but each of the spheres are infinite, endless um, things it would take, I think it says in Chassidus that it would take a lifetime to perfect one Yuda, which is one good attribute. So this is not, and that's why we have the concept in Kabbalah of reincarnations, because if it takes a lifetime to perfect one Mida, we keep reincarnating until we've perfected our entire soul. And we have three souls that we need to perfect. We have our Nefesh, our Ruach, and Neshama. So it can be lifetimes and lifetimes of work. However, our, uh, we know that our goal in life is not to be perfect and not to reach the perfection, but it's only to work on ourselves and to every day be better than we were yesterday or try to be better or even not be better, but get up and continue trying. And that even though we failed yesterday, we don't give up. That the next day we get up and say, today I'm going to try to be better than yesterday. And even if it's not, I'll get up and try again tomorrow and I'll be the best version of me I can be. And the spheros give us a map of how to do that. Because sometimes we know we want to be a better person. We don't know where to start and what's the best way to start. And sometimes we might be misguided and we'll work on things that are not necessarily things that we, sh we are relevant to us. And by learning the spheros in depth, we can really get into our soul really deep and dig into our soul and identify in all parts of our lives which spheros we are strongest in. And that's more important than knowing our weaknesses is knowing our strengths according to Hasidus. If you don't know your, if you only know your weaknesses, what you have to work on, not your strengths, how are you going to affect the world? So most importantly, to identify which Sphero is your unique photographic copy of Hashem's image were you gifted with? With which Spheros did Hashem give you the strongest concentration of color in? Are you gifted with so much Netzach or so much Kivura that you can change the world and 
use those gifts to your, to your advantage and to the world's advantage and to identify what those spheros are and what you can do with those. So if, you can, if we can explore the spheros throughout this course, and then you can identify in your life where your strengths are and then how to utilize those to yours and the world's advantage and to your connection and your soul's advantage, then we can really utilize that. And then also it's good to know how you can perfect or strengthen yourself in other areas where it might really help you with your mission. If you know that you can use more perseverance and conviction and pushing yourself to do things, then you know how to work with that sphere and where that sphere is, you can really reach a sense of, of wholeness and perfection. That's really what Sphira Omer, and I always laugh about Sphira Omer, how we're expected to perfect a sphere and uh, an entire sphere in a week. It feels impossible, but it's amazing because as you go back to it every year, you can reflect back on the year before and just see tiny, tiny baby steps of how you may have worked on a tiny area. And every year you can kind of get there a little bit more and more. I just wonder how the Jews actually perfected a sphera in a week or in a day from 49 days from where they were to where they got. They must have been huge souls to perfect an entire mida or entire emotional attribute, which is huge. It's a lifetime of work in, a, in just a week. So they must have been tremendous people to reach where they reached to by the eve, by the heir of Matz and Torah. And receiving the Torah, they got to the place where they were complete, complete in all of their attributes. And like, we look at them as sinners. So they must have been greater than we thought they were. So our goal is not to be perfect, but it's to know ourselves enough to know what our strengths are and what we're gifted with and what our soul is made up of so that we can better live and better work on the things that we should work on and everything that just becomes clear. Like Kabbalah, learning Haitzita, welcome. Learning Kabbalah is like learning, the way that it's depicted in Kabbalah is, fab, is just, it says it opens up channels of your mind. When you learn these models, of the Kabbalah says that when you learn the models of the world, which are the 10, the models of 10 or the 22 letters, maybe we'll do that next, of the Aleph Bay, you open up channels in your mind that allow you to access parts of your mind and see the world in ways that you could have never seen it. And you see these models reflected in everything that you go through in life. In anything that has sets of 10, you can see the spheros depicted in them. In every interaction, you can see the spheros being depicted in any thing that has four is you can see the four dimensions of the world and the four levels of the world depicting them. And it says it, it just opens up your soul and your mind to things that you could have never experienced if you learn Kabbalah in the right way and apply it to practice. So that's our goal, I guess, in this course. How much time do we have left? Okay, let's, uh, to continue, um, so we discussed the three models of the spheros, how they reflect inside of us that we are a reflection of Hashem. So just to summarize, so we have the 10 building blocks of the world um, and the 10 and how Hashem created the world and continues to create the world through these 10 stages and how we create or express outside of ourselves as well through these 10 steps of creative expression and how Hashem relates to the world in 10 manifestations or vessels that contain his infinite light in 10 different specific vessels. And the light is, is reflected to us or given to us in the form of that vessel, whether it's kindness or severity. And we also have that paralleled inside every human being. Every one of us has all these 10 um, sphero inside of our soul, both in our godly soul and in our human animal soul. So we have really 20 soul powers or they share soul powers. It's described in Tanya chapter three at length and way more in other parts of Hasidus to really get down to like, do they share the same soul, um, cohorts or are they given 
unique. It seems that they're given, they're each of they're each soul, our godly soul and our animal soul are given 10 soul powers, the soul powers of, God, of purity and the soul, 10 soul powers of impurity. And that's really what we're, what we're perfecting during the Sphere to Omer. Our 10 soul powers of our godly soul don't really need perfection. They already are perfect. All they want strive is to be close to God and to do the right thing. What we're really perfecting is the distortion of those 10 soul powers, of the 10 sphero inside of us. In our animal soul, they can be distorted and we can channel the love for things that are wrong and bad for us. We can channel our hatred in negative ways. Instead of our using our gvura to have self-restraint for negative things, we can have self-restraint and directed at baseless hatred. So we are trying to correct the corrupt versions of the, where our 10 channels um, or our 10 sphero could be corrupted. So the terms we need to know are Hashem's 10 spherot, which are 10 um, illuminations or divine manifestations. And within us, whenever we'll talk about ourselves, we'll speak about the 10 kochot nefesh, and I'll just use the word soul powers. So they are the reflections or the image of Hashem's, but I'll use the word soul powers because that's exactly what kochot nefesh means, soul power. Um, so yeah, this model is all over us. Um, and these are the three ones. So the one we're going to focus on is the one inside of us. Now, throughout Kabbalah, um, in Kabbalistic texts, they depict the spheros, and the way that they draw them are in like a graph is exactly like you see in the model, in the pages that I sent you. Um, they lie on three parallel vertical lines. So that is how, throughout Kabbalah, the soul powers are depicted. It's described, in Sefer Yisir, I believe, as a, a short line, a longer line, and an intermediary line. So we have these three lines, if you open it up. So I'll show you in my graph over here, just so you don't have to open it up. So we see we have three lines, the one on the right, the one on the left, and then the one in the middle. It's also, whenever you hear it in Kabbalah, the Eitz Chaim, the tree of life, or if you see in Spot, the trees, it's also called, it's called um, three things throughout Kabbalah. It's called the tree of life. And I forget the other two, I just blanked out. Um, I'll come back to me. But yeah, this is referred to as the tree. Oh, I'll get to it. Because it kind of does look like a tree. You see like the stem and then the top of the tree. Okay, so why is this important? So we have the right axis, the left axis, and the middle axis. It's going to be make it so much easier for us to kind of get into which soul power, which soul powers we have strongest and um, the most of most concentration of and which ones we may have to work on the most. Um, by knowing, by seeing what's on the right, what's on the left, and what's in the middle. So right is chesed. The right side of our body in Kabbalah, our right arm, and the right side of our torso is referred to as um, kind, the sign of kindness. Whenever we do a mitzvah, we do it with our right hand. Um, whenever Hashem acts with kindness, he acts with his right hand. So right always depicts kindness, and that's why you pick up, when you wash, you always wash your right hand first. You pick up something with your right hand, you always give tzedakah with your right hand. I think when I was little, um, when I was like six months, I went to the Red Beat and he gave me a dime to put in tzedakah and like he like switched it to my right hand. You'll see that a lot because right is always anything good you want to do with your right hand. You mean mikarevis and small docha. So anything on the right, is it axis or axi? Axis. No, axis. I'll just say axis. Okay, great. Yeah. So on the right axis, um, we have Chachma, Chesed, and Netzach. So there are souls that are rooted in the right axis of this model of the Sfirot. 
all the spheroid are on that side. So a lot of times when a soul's root, when a soul stems from the right, from the right axis, those souls will include those three, that, those three spheroids of Chachma, Chesed, and Netzach. And one of the common examples is Hil, the constant um, conflict between Hillel and Shammai, who were partners in learning Torah, is that Hillel was always lenient in his ruling, in his halachic ruling, and Shammai was always strict in his halachic ruling. And Kabbalists and Hasidic masters said that this is because Hillel's soul was rooted in the right axis, axis of, the, of the Kabbalistic chart of Spheros in Chesed, and Shammai's soul was rooted in Gevura. And therefore, he naturally had a tendency to always lean towards the right and lean towards being giving and saying okay and pardoning and forgiving, whereas Shammai was very meticulous and leaned towards being more strict and self-restraining and saying no. That is a common example. Another common example is the Avos, that Avram's soul was rooted in chesed and was very unrestrained and unbridled, like his tent had four doors and it was open to anyone and everyone who wanted. And Yitzchak's tent, um, Yitzchak's soul was rooted in Gevura, which we see by the Akedah. Yitzchak's main, Isaac's main challenge in life was being sacrificed and the self-restraint that he showed, that is the epitome of Gevura. He was ready to sacrifice his life with so much self-restraint. So he was the epitome of Gevura. And the middle, so that describes the left, the right axis, which is kindness and just giving an unbridled welcomeness to anyone and everyone, good or bad, um, which is not always positive because you know, we should be selective and have restraint sometimes and not welcome everything and anything. Um, and Yitzchak um, represents Gvura or extreme Gvura, which is very self-restrained. And Yaakov represents the middle axis, which is a harmonious blend of the two, which is called Namidas Tif Eres, which means harmony. And it's described in Kabbalah as a beautiful blend of two colors. You have red and blue and Tif Eres is purple. It's a beautiful blend of and beauty is a blend of colors. If something is one color, it's not beautiful. When there's a, be a painting, is a beautiful blend of tr so many layers and of colors. Um, and it's really interesting that because Avram leaned so much to Chesed and didn't necessarily have the blend of the two, it says he gave birth to Yishmael, who was a, a corrupt version of Chesed, where he loved everyone and anything, and to the extent that he had no self-restraint and anyone he wanted, he went and loved them or raped them or took them without thinking about the consequences. And Yitzchak, because he was so much Kavura, he also had Esav, who was the epitome of negative, of corrupt Kavura. Even though Yitzchak had a holy Kavura and self-restraint, um, he gave birth to Esav. And Yaakov, who was a blend of the two, had t all 12 of his sons were, were tzaddikim, were holy and righteous. So we see that in order to be able to produce positive results. You can't be only chesed or only gavura. And that's why it's so important for us to pull apart these spheros and dissect our personalities and make sure that we're always blending in every interaction we have with a child, with a friend, with a spouse, with a parent, that we're bringing in chesed and gavura because chesed and gavura are like these, represent the whole right side and the whole left side. And we have to make sure that we're acting with harmony and that we're considering like in modern day, we would use like wise mind the concept of a wise mind. You're bringing in the, your feelings and you're bringing in, which is the right side, and you're bringing in your ration. And in every decision that you make, you want to make sure that you're being wise, which is a blend of the two. So we're, we're making sure that we are blending it in, that in order to have any productive result, that we're always blending chesed and vura. And some of us might fall to the left, some of us might fall to the right. Most of us, and even if you fall to the middle, even if you're born to Ferris, 
um, the corruption of Tiferes, of knowing exactly how much, how much um, kindness or how much self-restraint to use and when to use it, the corrupt version of that is manipulation. Um, because when someone knows exactly what to say and what not to say and exactly how much to give to string you along, that can be manipulated, it can be corrupted and used as manipulative tactics. So even if someone is Tiferet and already knows exactly when to stop and when to take and when to give and when not to, it has to be used for good things, to help others and to, to always make sure that you're not using it to take from someone else or to manipulate another person into doing something that you want them to do for your self-benefit. So even within that, there is so much work to analyze each of these attributes. And we're in the middle of Sierra Omer now. Um, today's Sierra, does anybody know? Anyone follow? 20 seconds. 22nd. Right, so 22nd. And each day of the Omer in the Sidur that we use, um, we say today we are correcting the Sira of, and we say the, the general Sira of the week, and then the particular Sira within that Sira, which in, um, in Hebrew it's called Hiskalalus, the inter, and in English it's the inter-inclusion that each sphera included in it all the other spheros. Anyone know which, which one is today's sphera? Mm. What is that? For us, because it's still a day before, it's, I think, Malchut Shebet Peret. Here, I have it also. Mal, so that today would be Chesed of Netzach. Chesed of Netzach. Netzach or something, right? Yeah, beautiful. So if you follow Simon Jacobson, he has this book, this Sphere chart book, or he has it online as well. You get a daily email telling you what the Sphere of the day is. And so if this week working on Netzach, which is the attribute of um, conquering or victory or perseverance, um, it's on the right side. So it's like wanting to go all forth no stops, doesn't matter what gets in my way. That's what Netzach is. So on the one hand, it's, a, it's the driving force that gets you to succeed and to be motivated. On the other hand, if Netzach is corrupted, it can ignore anything that's in its path and it can just do whatever it wants, needs to get to its goal. It's goal-driven, it wants to conquer and it wants to be successful and do what it needs to do, which is amazing. However, Netzach needs to include within it understanding, compassion, love, restraint, all the other spheros in order for Netzach to be pure. If Netzach doesn't incorporate all the other spheros, it can be the worst attribute. When someone wants to win at all costs, that is an awful, it could be a horrible attribute that steps all over anyone else and hurts anyone who's in their way because they want to win at all costs. Cheating, lying, knocking over people, putting people down on the way, hurting people on the way, ignoring other people. So if Netzach includes within it kindness and empathy and and harmony and all the other spheros, then Netzach will be used for great things. And then someone's Netzach can be tremendous and powerful. Um, so each day we work on a different attribute of Netzach in order that your Netzach is wholesome and healthy and, and um, used for the right reasons and not for corrupt reasons. So this week we're working on Netzach. It's the first day of Netzach. And today we're including, we're working on the Chesed with the Netzach, which is a beautiful thing to use. It's first of all, we're working on our drivenness. So if you are lacking this, this attribute of drivenness, we are incorporating and meditating each day how to bring, be more driven, be more goal-oriented, find what our goals are and motivate ourselves to reach them. But we're also bringing in love within that and bringing, making sure that any drivenness that we have, any goals that we have, 
that we're bringing love inside of that, the kindness, that it's with any goal that we have is always expressed with kindness. We always get there with kindness and that we don't get there with any sort of hate or negativity on, on and involved in it. And that it only is done with peace. For example, if our goal is to bring Mashiach, the Rebbe always stressed that even if our goal is to spread Mashiach, we should never do it in a way that makes someone that takes away kindness or in an unkind way. If our goal is to spread Torah, if you, we should, it's obviously never done in a way that will make anyone else feel bad or put anyone else down or in a way that's not acceptable or accepted. So it's something the Rebbe always stresses that when you're doing the Mitzayim and you're trying to get someone to light Shabbos candles, always first thing and foremost is chesed. It's always with love. Never do something that will, that in a way that's not bedar shalom. Everything has to be done in a way of peace and love. That's the first thing you need to remember. You have your goals, but always in a way that promotes love and doesn't um, cause conflict. So if something is going to cause any sort of conflict, it's not worth it. Um, any questions? Yeah, Jordan, I just can't hear you. Um, it's kind of a general question about the chart. Um, why is Malchus sometimes like by the throat almost, and then sometimes it's at the bottom of the chart? Oh, good. So there's actually, there's 10 spheros. However, in Kabbalah, there's different, there's actually 11 spheros in the chart that I gave you. And in most charts, there's 11. That's because Keter and Da'at are two dimensions of the same faculty. I don't see Malchus by the throat ever. You mean Da'at and Keter? That you sent out. It's not like Oh, you're right, you're right, you're right. Okay, so... Okay, so there's a lot of different models, how the Kabbalists are used. Well, in different Kabbalists use different models. The ones that are always inter, the, the, the right axis, the left axis are always the same. Your soda is always the same. The three that move around is sometimes you'll see a model without Da'as. Um, sometimes you'll see a model without Keter because Keter is a super conscious or the subconscious. And Da'at is your internalization of an idea or your connectedness to an idea. So there are two parts of one soul faculty. And Malchus, although it's the, depicted in the body by the womb or by the offspring, and it's depicted by, according to what we're talking about in Kabbalah, it'll either be depicted as the womb, but in many places, Malchus is the mouth as well. So in many, Malchus in Chassidus, there are hundreds of pages of Chassidus that explain the parallels of Malchus being speech, because a king rules through his speech. Now, a king doesn't rule by forcing anyone. He speaks and everyone has to listen. And Hashem runs the world through speech. Hashem creates the world through speech. So speech is creation. So in all those models, Malchus will be speech, but also very much connected to procreation because speech creates and our womb creates. So there's a lot of parallels between, and Kabbalah is the upper mouth or the lower mouth. So there's a lot of parallels between um, creative powers of our womb and creative powers of our speech. But it, depending on which model or what we're speaking about, Kabbalah will, so those three, you should know, you might get confused. Malchus can be depicted by the mouth as speech, or Malchus can be depicted by the womb, and sometimes as the fetus or the child that then creates the next succession of the Siros. And Da'as and Keter will both be depicted either one or the other in that model because they're two parts of one. And they're all three kind of one sphere. <laughs> Malchus will then, the bottom one, Malchus will in many times be the Keter for the next world. Malchus means kingship and um, royalty, and that will become the crown, which are very connected for the next world. So if we're talking about the step-by-step -step formulation of the world, the Malchus is the Keter for the next world. So really Malchus and Keter are interchangeable. Malchus 
can sometimes be the mouth and sometimes be the womb and dot and keter are interchangeable or uses one or the other. So there's really only 10 building blocks of creation. Sometimes they use das, sometimes they use malchus, um, keter, and then malchus is a keter for the next world. Thank you. It, it doesn't really make sense, but it just it is that way. <laughs> it just is that way. One more thing to end off with, because we have one more minute, one more concept. I feel like we put in all the concepts today and then we'll get down to business next week. One more concept is the interconnectedness that I already mentioned of the Sphero, that we know this because in Spirit Omer, every day we're including with, in our day another sphere that's included within it. This used to be, when I was in my like 1920, my favorite concept that I researched and just, I guess, studied for hours and hours. It was mind-blowing to me. It changed my life. This idea of like inter-inclusion, of the holographic idea of Kabbalah, that everything in the world includes within it everything else. Because if our world is made up of 10 spheros and every sphere includes within it everything else, then everything in the world includes within it everything else. And it gives room for this uh, concept that our world, everything in our world is a hologram, which means that it includes within it all of all of creation is included within every particle. So if you were to break down all of creation into particles, each particle would include all of creation inside of it. That's just how it is. And that's what we learned from the inter-inclusion of the spheros, which is called hiskalalus, hamidos, that... Um, and we learn in Kabbalah that Hashem first created, Hashem made many worlds that didn't work until he got to our world that somehow works. One of the worlds Hashem created was exactly like our world. However, each sphera worked on its own. Each one of these 10 spheros was independent and they couldn't live together. Chesed was like um, fire or, or water and Gura was fire and they consumed each other and destroyed each other and the whole world shattered within a matter of moments. The world couldn't last a moment. And because the spheros didn't work together, they, didn't, they couldn't relate to one another. How could fire, chesed, and gore relate to each other when they're the opposite of each other? How can they work together to build a beautiful world? The only way was when Hashem recreated the world and the way we have it now is that, like we said, in order for us to relate to Hashem, in order for us to relate to anything, we need to include that within. It has to be in us somehow already. You can only, a man can never understand labor unless he went through labor. So each midah had to include within it an aspect of all the other midos in order for it to relate and work together with other Midos. And the Midos have to learn how to work together. So Chesed includes within it its antithesis, its, its Gevura within it. The second day of Sfiris Omer, we work on our Gevura of Chesed. So if every single trait includes within it every other trait, it can then harmonize and synthesize and work together and incorporate that Sfira within itself. Not just work together, but use that advantage of the other Sfira to its own advantage that I can only be my greatest chesed if I use Gevura and include everyone else's ideas within me. And that is how the world was created. We're all a small piece of a puzzle in all of Judaism. We're not all the same. There's so many sections of Judaism. We don't want everyone to be Chabad or everyone to be at one type of Judaism. We need every part to complete each other. And if we would focus on that instead of focusing on how we're different and how each sect of Judaism is different, if we would focus on incorporating and learning from all the other parts of Judaism and all the beautiful parts of creation and incorporating those that would only strengthen us. And if we can focus on those aspects that we have within us, a part of every single other human and creation and every soul inside of us that would, by harmonizing that and synthesizing that, that would only make us stronger and not weaker. And that's kind of like what our mission is to look past and realize that someone else's ideas and strengths will only make us all work together and work better. So let's get down to it next week. See you. Can you have, has any questions?
I'm here. Thank you, Kiki. Thank you, Thank you Kiki. You got a question, Eva? Yeah. Um, can you go over the, I was trying to find uh, each day of the week corresponding to the sphere and I didn't find it. Like, did you mean within the Omer or just like in general? Oh, no, no, no. In creation of the world, Hashem used each day of the week, starting with Sunday corresponding to Chesed. Mm-hmm. And then Monday Gura is a rectification of that sphere. Do you know it's, wait, but then there are 10. No, right. so seven. it's only the seven emotive ones because oh, those are more okay. imminent in the world. Those are more like the brains mm-hmm. are kind of like preceding that. Um, okay. But I could send you an article that goes through it and it depicts how yes, please. Um, the first day light and dark represents chesed and like gvura is the splitting of the waters, like dividing, okay. division. Wow. So it really works. I have an article on that. So that okay. one way to, one, if you really are into this, you can look at the day of the week you were born and then find out, according to Kabbalah, that which is your tikkun, which is hard to okay. know what that means. It's in the olden days, in the days of uh, Rizal, they were able to know, he would look at their soul and tell them who, the, who was their soul beforehand, which, who their reincarnation of, and what their soul's mission in the world is. And some modern day people when said, like, we, don't, we don't need to know that now, in a way that's, in a way that's amazing to know who your soul was before. But in a way, it's also limiting because you feel so limited to doing your specific mission that you don't have as much free choice in your mission in life and figuring it out. And in a way, not knowing necessarily exactly what your mission is gives you more room for even more free choice to just be who you are and not be directed. Like if someone took your hand and said, this is your mission in life, this is what you're doing for the rest Mm -hmm. of your life, it's not as much your own. So it would be cool, but... But yeah, it's, it is yeah. as much as I like to look into that and see which day of the week I was born and which sphere I have to work on. And um, yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. Do you know which day of the week you were born? Uh, Wednesday. So that's Netzach. That's like victory. That's the week, the sphere of this week. Okay, cool. That's this oh, week's God. the one we're working on in Sphere Omer is Wednesday, which is Netzach, which it might mean that you have a lot of Netzach and that you want to like perfect your Netzach. It might mean that mm-hmm. you want to incorporate more Netzach in your life. Like you don't know what it means, but it means that that's yeah. part of your mission in life is to perfect that Sphere, which is amazing. Yeah. You can learn about it okay. this week. Okay. Thank you so, so much. No problem. So good to see everybody. Jordan, so good to see you. And Gita. And Jamie and her Thank mom, you, Leah. Kiki. Thank Leia, you very nice. much. Let's hear from you. I'm so happy. Thank you, Kiki. Thank you. Hi, Michelle. Good to see you. Thank you. Good to see Hi, you. mom. You're wonderful. You really you speak very well. You Thank say you. Of really wonderful things. Thank you so much. Well, thanks, Michelle. I appreciate <laughs> it. That's so sweet. Jamie, I wanted to know how you guys are doing. I keep thinking about you. How, how are you? Um, we're so. I'm. I'm so good. I think we're all so good. Is your mom, Michelle, are you like sad that Jamie's not home with you? <laughs> mom, you're muted. <laughs> you're muted. Mom, you're muted. <laughs> she's talking, but she doesn't know she's muted. Oh, am I? You uh, yeah, okay. You're good. <laughs> when, this real, when this first started, I was really sad and scared, not knowing what the best choice was for Jamie. But when she reassured me that life there, you know, being in Israel and with her friends and the environment is so much better than here. So much. I felt a lot better. I'm still so sad she's on the other side of the world, but 
um, it's just still so crazy here in New York. It's really, really bad. Yeah, so, so bad. I don't know. New York, I, you know, like the, not, New York has the same population as Israel, apparently. New York has like eight and a half million people and Israel does. And Israel has 200 something deaths. And New York has, I think, 11,000 or 12,000. Yeah. yeah. It's crazy. Oh. Really scary. Jamie, who's in the house with you? Me, Hanasvia, Viola, and Sarah. Oh, good. When did Hanasvia yeah. come back? Um, she came back the Sunday after Pesach ended. I want to visit soon. Am I allowed to? You should. Yeah, we wouldn't care. <laughs> you should. Kiki, where are you? I'm, I'm in my home. house in Efrat. It's like a 20-minute drive from Jerusalem. We have a Chabad house here. It's like an Anglo settlement, but like there's 5,000 Anglo families here. Oh, do you run a Chabad house? Yeah, this is our. I'm in my Chabad house. Oh. The English-speaking Chabad house for like people who moved to Israel, like Aliyah. Were you one of Jamie's teachers in in the Mayanot? Yeah. Oh. Oh, yeah. wow. Mom, it's, it's Kiki who I, the one who I always, that's like, who I thought, yeah. yeah, I thought so, I know, she's so cute, <laughs> I was like, I always talk about you, Kiki, <laughs> oh, so sweet, so Jamie, you guys are okay, food-wise, and like, is anyone yeah. having a hard time in the house, or are you all all right? No, I think we've been pretty good, I think because we have like that outdoor space on the side, what do you guys great? do all day? We, well, Viola sleeps till like two, she's been waking up earlier though, I sleep till noon, Mm -hmm. Sarah meditates a little. We, we're like always busy. It's like crazy. Really? So you're not like we going out of it. your mind? Is anyone like, why didn't I go home? No, none of us. I guess all of you like don't really have a reason to be home. Like Sarah, yeah. like there's nothing like waiting for you. Like besides your yeah, family, no, sure. like, you no, know, like true. everyone is, should be here, I guess. So yeah, I worry about you guys. Do you guys go to Rip oh. Mark ever? Yeah, we've been to her a bunch of times. We sometimes pick up like food and supplies or go to her for like soup or chicken or something. Right. She's what? You say slides, food and what? Food. I don't know what I said. Oh, I said <laughs> and what about oh, Shabbat? What have you been doing for Shabbat? Have you been eating out ever? Did anyone invite you? Um, we've been like, I think that we're all more comfortable like eating out now, but we, we haven't, we've been like just me, Hanasia, Sarah, Viola, however it is. We like split up cooking, like, been really fun we like go over menu but now that store is open this week did you guys go out more like for ice cream or anything yeah we we usually like this week we've been like we go to the co-op every freaking second but <laughs> we've been got like today i went to ben yehuda i went like shopping and everything's open on ben yehuda everything and and yafo and this the sh not the shook but like yeah every store on ben yehuda and on yafo was open almost every and they let you just go out like you wear a mask obviously yeah, wearing a mask. Um, certain like clothing stores, most clothing stores are open. Certain ones will only let like, I don't know, you know, like Zoya, they only let like, I think 10 people in at a time and they take everyone's temperature. They have good stuff. I need to go, I need to stock up on comfy yeah. house dresses. That, that's good, what I said. Some, quarantine some years they, they have, have like nice stuff. I buy all my comfy dresses there, but last year they didn't have anything. Like I didn't buy anything yeah. last summer. Jamie, I don't want to go. Jay, tell her to go where you show where you just were because you bought a couple of nice things. What yeah, store? I went to I went to Zoya and then another one. I forget what it's called. It's right by Big Apple Pizza. Is it expensive? Um, no, it's like Zoya. It's exactly like Zoya. They just have a little bit of different stuff. <laughs> Which Big Apple? Ben Yehuda Big Apple? Yeah. There's another one near Zoya that I love. It's called 
I don't know what it's called. It used to be called Fifth Sex, like Fifth Avenue, and now it's called yeah. something new. It's so good. It's after yeah. the, like, towards green. Is it basic fashion? Maybe. It's like, it looks just like Zoe, but it's more organized and neat. It's right before Tom yeah. Noon. Tom Noon is really I think good. It's not as big as Zoya, but well, it's maybe the same size. It's just it's like square. Yeah, yeah, I, I love like that place. I think I think it's called Basic now. Yeah, they changed names now. I like that one also. Oh my gosh, yeah. it's so weird. Everything's open now. It's it was crazy today. I just was like, okay, I'm gonna go for a walk. I'll like maybe go to Ben Yehuda. And we're recording now. What? Oh, it's recording. Oops. Oh my gosh. <laughs>